The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Genghis Khan, known in Mongolia as Chinggis Khan, pronounced sometimes as Genghis Khan, and his army of Mongols, the Mongolian Empire, associated with terrible tales of conquest, destruction, bloodshed throughout the 13th and 14th centuries, and rightfully so. In 25 years, 21 of those during the reign of Genghis, the Mongols conquered more territory than the Romans did in four centuries. They kicked a lot of ass to do so. This famed clan leader and his immediate successors created the largest single bordered empire ever to exist, spanning the entire Asian continent from the Pacific Ocean to modern-day Hungary and Europe. Such an empire could not have been shaped without visionary leadership, superior organizational skills, the swiftest and most resilient cavalry ever known, an army of superb archers referred to as the Devil's Horsemen in Western sources, and of course a real gift for wreaking havoc and devastation and mayhem. To go along with record-setting mass murder and conquest, Genghis Khan was also a very prolific procreator. Today, more than 15 million men across the globe are his descendants. And there's more to this legendary man's history. He and his offspring reinvented the battlefield from unique strategies and tactics to the first recorded case of biological warfare and early cannons. He opened up the Silk Road trade routes and united many of the peoples in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. This is a huge topic to try and fit in roughly two hours, like massively huge. But we're going to cover a lot of it. He and his army were basically at war continuously until he died, and his army kept on going for another 140-plus years. So many battles. The tale of Genghis Khan is an epic one, and I'm excited to share it today on a very rapey and pillagey edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday and fuck 2020. Holy shit and hail Nimrod. A pandemic, riots, plague of locusts. Not even joking about the locusts. They've shown up in the greatest numbers in the past 25 years in parts of East Africa. The UN estimates uh, up to 25 million East Africans will suffer from food shortages later this year. Who knows how much starvation 
What's going on, Lucifina? We got murder hornets showing up in the Northwest, literally decapitating honeybees like something out of some weird, shitty B-horror movie. Come on, Bojangles. You and Triple M need to grab your guns and protect us. I'm Dan Cummins, a suck master meat sack, trying to roll with one cultural paradigm shift after another just like you, and you are listening to Time Suck. We got new merch in the store. We just donated almost six grand to ALZ.org to help end Alzheimer's and dementia. Link in the episode description. And right now, it feels weird to talk about any of that. The murder of George Floyd, still news to me when I recorded last week's episode. Protests, you know, barely begun. I didn't have time to get my gather my thoughts. Took me a second to understand that supporting or not supporting the protests actually not a political issue. No matter how hard many in Washington, D.C. and the mainstream media and many of my fellow citizens try to make it to be. Why do we keep trying to frame fucking everything in America into this us versus them binary arguments? It's bullshit. Life is not black and white. To everyone who tries to spin this into a, uh, if you're for the protest, you're against the police. And if you're for the police, you're racist. Uh, fuck off. The protests are not about looting, right? Uh, not about being liberal, supporting good law enforcement officers. Not about being conservative. The protests right now, in my opinion, are about human rights. Racial equality is about civil liberty for everyone. Is anything more American than civil liberty and protests? We're a nation built on revolution, a nation supposedly built on liberty and justice for all. And now it's un-American to revolt? No. A lot of the same people saying the government didn't have the right to tell them to stay at home during a pandemic are now in favor of the government shutting protests down. Fucking what? That is the ultimate hypocrisy. That makes no sense. I support the protests, not the looters, not fuck the police, the protests. Why? Because black lives do matter to me. And that doesn't mean other lives don't. Please don't twist it into that. Black Lives Matters uh, means right now no race needs the support of America more than the black race. Reform is needed. Change is needed. The stats back that. And it's happening, you know? Some, some reform, some changes. It's going on right now. And uh, I'm excited. It feels like some really good healing might come from all this. Some really good unity. Why be against that? I'm hopeful the change is coming will help the black community and help law enforcement. In order for the public to properly trust law enforcement, bad officers, they have to go. The more good cops there are, the, the easier their dangerous jobs become because they're met with trust instead of fear and anger from the people they're paid to protect, not the people they're paid to terrorize. Weeding out bad officers is the best thing to do for everyone. Some professions, they need to be held to higher standards and law enforcement, one of those professions. Kate Keith, one half of the Spicy Club who works with us now in the Suck Dungeon, she found a great Chris Rock quote that speaks to that. Chris Rock, one of the greatest comics of all time. Top 10 easy. And this very wise uh, man once said, I know it's hard being a cop, but some jobs, you can't have bad apples. Everybody got to be good, like pilots. American Airlines can be like, most of our pilots like to land. We just got some bad apples, like to crash into mountains. Team meet Zach forever, and hail Nimrod. Let's talk about Genghis Khan now. All right, heads up, my pronunciations uh, may be more off than ever on this one. Uh, a, uh, this is how you pronounce Mongolian words in English guide may exist. I sure as hell couldn't find it. Most of what I was able to find came from short Genghis Khan documentary videos on YouTube. So I hope they're accurate. Uh, before we dig into one of the most legendary meat sacks ever, let's get an understanding of where he was from, what life was like back when he lived Mongolia, a, a very unique country, very unique land. After learning a couple things about Mongolia, I'll share some interesting info about Genghis's legacy, and then we'll dig into the Mongols' mystery prowess. And then, uh, uh, mystery, did I say mystery? We'll dig into the Mongols' military prowess. Maybe, maybe they had mystery, uh, mystery prowess. I don't even know what that is. And then it's time suck, timeline time, uh, beginning with Genghis's birth, leading us through a life of unparalleled military conquest. No empire in the history of the world kicked more ass than the Mongols at the height of their power. 
right? They were the empire equivalent of a, a young Mike Tyson knocking cities out in the first round. The Mongols under Genghis Khan were smart, ruthless, innovative. It's fucking tough. Maybe being from Mongolia helped with that. It was a only the strong survive kind of place. The life of a person living in the Mongolia Genghis was born into was not an easy one. One had to endure a harsh nomadic lifestyle in the Mongolian steppes where vegetation was scarce. There was little game to be found compared to, say, the lush forests of much Europe. And there wasn't a lot of natural shelter due to much of the land being barren, high desert with very little trees. The terrain of Mongolia was and is one of mountains and rolling plateaus covered with rocky grasslands, semi-desert highlands, just flat-out deserts, unforgiving. There's the rugged, the rugged Altai Mountains in the west and the north and the high plains in the east and the south. About 80% of Mongolia's land sits at least 1,000 meters or over half a mile above sea level. The highest point in the nation is uh, Kutin Peak, um, over 14,000 feet above sea level, described on some sites as the most remote peak in the world. The nation has an average elevation of 1,580 meters or 5,180 feet above sea level. That's just 100 feet shy of a mile, over twice the average elevation of the United States. Mongolia's altitude is comparable to Colorado, a state possessing the highest average elevation in the U.S. at 6,800 feet. And if you live somewhere near sea level and aren't used to that, it can take quite an adjustment period to get used to it. I learned about that at a comedy festival years ago in Aspen, Colorado, where I partied as hard as I had at other festivals or I had during weekends back in college, but instead of just ended up drunk but still able to climb into bed like normal, I ended up literally passed out on the sidewalk. Why? Because drinking at high altitudes exaggerates, enhances dehydration, lower oxygen levels above 5,000 feet, make you breathe in and out faster, more deeply, so that you lose more water through respiration. A lot of long-distance runners and other endurance athletes train at high altitudes because if your lungs can make do with less oxygen, they can excel in environments full of more oxygen. Makes sense. Even breathing harder in Mongolia than it is in much of the world. In addition to its high altitude, it's also a land full of salty lakes, sand dunes, rolling grasslands, alpine forests, frequent earthquakes, and glaciers. Yes, glaciers. Even though much of the land is desert, uh, they're not the super hot all the time kind. Mongolian winters long and cold with average temperatures across most of the country falling below freezing from November through March. The average high in January is negative 16 degrees Celsius, 3 degrees Fahrenheit. The average low is negative 26 degrees Celsius, negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. December and February, not much better. The temperature dips below negative 40 degrees Celsius and Fahrenheit in parts of the country everywhere. That's super cold. And those are just averages for the whole nation. Obviously, some places colder than that, right? And these, and these temperatures are brutally cold now when we live with the modern amenities of central heating, heated seats and steering wheels and our automobiles, portable electric space heaters, shit like chemical hand warming packs and winter coats built with innovative new thermal technologies. Imagine dealing with those, you know, rough temperatures with nothing but whatever you or some other villagers could sew or weave together out of animal hides. No, thank you. Because it's normally a little frigid in Mongolia doesn't mean it can't get warm. It can get pretty hot there too. Summers are short, but toasty. Temperatures can top 38 degrees Celsius, 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the southern Gobi region. And uh, 33 degrees Celsius, uh, a little over 91 degrees Fahrenheit. In Ulaanbaatar, the capital city, which houses almost half of the nation's population of just over 3 million people. And you heard that number right. Not 300 million, not 30, three in the whole country. Only a little more than 3 million people live in Mongolia today, despite the nation being in the top 20 for nations worldwide in terms of overall geographical size. Mongolia, the 18th largest nation on earth, over 1.5 million square kilometers, over 600,000 square miles, largest landlocked nation in the world that doesn't border a closed sea. In terms of population, however, way down towards the bottom at 136th. 
To put that combination of size and population into perspective, El Salvador has over twice as many people as Mongolia, even though it's only roughly 21,000 square kilometers, 8,000 square miles. Twice as many people, 75 times smaller. Mongolia actually has the lowest population density out of any nation on earth. 1.9 people per square kilometer, about five people per square mile. And why is Mongolia still so sparsely populated? It's rugged. Not an easy land for people to survive in. The more I talk about Mongolia, the more I feel like there is little to no chance I will ever be hired by their board of tourism. Sounds like a place where if you live there, you're willing to take a vacation to Siberia to see someplace nicer. Uh, what did Mongols eat in this utopia? I'm sure I'm making it sound much worse than it probably actually is. Honey. Mongolia produces more honey than almost any nation in the world, curiously, and is the only nation where the murin honey bush grows, the only shrub that can produce honey without the need of bees, the only honey you can harvest straight from a plant. In addition to this abundance of honey, Mongolia is also covered in various mineral milk springs, over 5,000 natural springs, uh, bubbling up like a root-based milk, similar to, say, almond milk or soy milk. And that is why Mongolia translates to the land of milk and honey. And that is not true. It's horseshit. The world does not have uh, uh, honey bushes. Milk springs. That'd be fucking sweet, though. Right after you're stuck out in the woods, it's like, ah, oh, man, I just got to find some honey bushes. Got to find me a little milk spring and all will be good. Uh, the etymology of the world Mongolia is not known with any certainty. Uh, it may have derived from Mugulu, 4th century founder of the Ruron uh, Cognate. may also be derived from a monkey, Tengri Gal, Eternal Skyfire. Eternal Skyfire! That's dope. It's a great band name. Please welcome to the stage, Eternal Skyfire! It's going to be a good show. Uh, but seriously, since they just couldn't pick honey, from some kind of magical honey bush, couldn't drink milk that bubbled up from the ground via super handy-dandy milk springs, what did they eat? Hunting provided for a larger percentage of food that made it to your table in Mongolia than it did in a lot of other milder climates, full of fruit trees and fertile soil. A lot of Mongols had become real, real handy with the bow long before Genghis showed up. There were a lot more hunters than farmers. There were snow leopards, wild sheep, the Siberian ibex, megahorn goats, Mongolian saiga, these mini deer, musk deer, uh, black-tailed gazelles, wild boars, elk, black storks, the two-humped Bactrian camel, golden eagles, about 450 species of birds, nine different kinds of snakes, and a whole bunch of fish if you, if you want some of that tasty-ass water steak. Uh, Mongols also ate cheese, yogurt, butter, and dried milk curds. Dried milk curds. Yeah. Does not sound uh, delicious. Uh, they also drank a mildly alcoholic drink called kumis, made from mare's milk. Fermented horse milk. Fuck yeah, bro. Delicious. Sometimes kumis also made with donkey milk. Mmm, get some of that sweet fermented donkey milk. Hey, bartender, please pass another glass of some fermented donkey milk. Uh, Mongolia, the milking season for horses traditionally runs between mid-June and early October. I love that there's a horse milking season. I don't know why milking a horse is so funny to me. Probably because I'm a child. I have the brain of an eighth grader. And when I think about milking horses, I picture male horses being milked. That is beaten off. I just picture a bunch of Mongolian nomads. <laughs> Just jerking off a bunch of horses and then fermenting the horse cum uh, into some nasty-ass creamy beer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on now. Uh, good luck getting that image out of your head. Uh, or this next image of something almost as weird but true. Mongols did not drink horse cum beer that I know of, but they did sometimes drink horse's blood, blood from a still-living horse. This is intense. As a last resort to start, uh, save off starvation on like harsh long rides from place to place or to get a little extra strength during a long battle, Sometimes Mongols would drink blood straight from their horses' bodies by cutting a vein into their horse's neck and sucking on that like a vampire. <laughs> I 
Not kidding about that one. Just taking a few sips of horse blood from their steeds and hopping back on and riding back out into battle. Uh, according to an account of at least uh, one 13th century Italian diplomat and archbishop, Giovanni uh, de Pian del Carpin, one of the first Europeans to enter the court of the great Khan in the Mongol Empire. If times got tough enough, the Mongols would also even eat human flesh, roast up some people they'd take cap- uh, taken captive. This all speaks to how pragmatic the Mongols were, right? They did whatever they had to do to survive. Humans, horse blood, uh, you know, they, they, would, they would do it if they had to. Wasn't their go-to though. Herds of horses, sheep, goats, yaks, camels gave nomads milk, wool, dung for fuel, uh, and meat when hunting wasn't working out. Uh, rather than farm, because they were nomadic, wasn't a lot of farming being done, wild fruits and vegetables gathered primarily through foraging rounded out the diet. Uh, another mammal often hunted by the Mongols that was not a direct source of food in Genghis's Mongolia were other Mongols. Nomadic life was rough, with raiders frequently coming for your livestock, blood feuds, clan rivalries, stealing, killing, full-on invasions, not uncommon. It was very much a kill-or-be-killed environment. Centuries of one clan fighting another. Giant nomadic families continually battling for Mongolian supremacy. So how many Mongols were living like this? Not a ton compared to how populated the world is now. Uh, during this, this makes this uh, story this much more impressive too. Just how tough, like, like pound for pound, how strong the Mongols were. During Genghis Khan's prime, the population of Mongolia uh, said to have never spiked above a million. So never more than a million Mongolians. For comparison, at its height, around 160 CE, the Roman Empire said to have had 60 to 70 million people. China today, around 1.4 billion people. Now, uh, those 1 million Mongol, or sorry, and those uh, 1 million Mongols were spread out over an enormous geographical empire. At the time of Genghis's death, his empire spanned 12 million square kilometers, 4.6 million square miles. By the time his successors were finished, the empire would control around 24 million square kilometers, 9.2 square million or million square miles well over twice the size of China, which is just over 3.7 million square miles in size. Right? They were small in numbers. Uh, their military tactics, second to none, though, in the times they lived in. They did a lot with their numbers. And a comparatively small number of Mongols consistently took out much larger forces of foreigners. Uh, and, what, and what were those million Mongolians doing? What was life like for the average Mongolian? Again, primarily nomads, living mainly off trade and livestock. Genghis's Mongols lived in gares, these portable, round, sturdy, sometimes elaborate tents covered with skins or felt, held down with ropes made out of horsehair, uh, designed to be dismantled and carried by camels generally to another site where it would take around two hours to rebuild. I watched a video on YouTube of some modern gears. Uh, many Mongolian nomads, you know, still living out on the steppe, those vast, generally treeless, high-altitude grasslands of Central Asia. And these big, round tents, generally attached to solar panels now, powering modern electronics inside like flat-screen TVs. Pretty wild mix of old and new to see. Uh, the Mongolians packed up and traveled based on feeding needs for livestock and trade routes. They traveled from lowlands to highlands, uh, from open valleys in the summer to hidden hilly nooks in the winter to escape brutal winter winds. Mongolian nomadic life generally saw men doing the hunting, women doing the cooking, but the division of labor, not always that clear cut. Often both sexes would perform the tasks of the other, including using a bow and riding because of how much harder it was to stay alive in Mongolia compared to other places. Women often had to hunt and sometimes fight. Mainly, though, women tended animals, set up and packed away camps, drove the tribe's wagons, looked after the children, prepared meals, and entertained guests. Things were comparatively more progressive in Mongolia as far as women's roles and rights than in most other contemporary Asian cultures. Women could, for example, both own and inherit property. Several women even ruled as regents in the spells between the reign of the great Khans Another area of Mongol life where women were actively involved with religion. 
Mongols' religion, no sacred texts uh, or particular ceremonies, but rather a mix of animism, the beliefs that objects, places, and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence, uh, ancestor worship, and shamanism, a religious practice that involves a practitioner, a shaman, believed to interact with a spirit world through altered states of consciousness. Sounds pretty sweet. Uh, shamans can be both men and women, uh, thought to be able to communicate with the spirits and travel in their world, helping to find lost souls and divine future events. Other religions would also show up in Mongol culture as they encountered and sometimes conquered Christians and Muslims. Tibetan Buddhism also became popular, perhaps, uh, perhaps the experts say, thanks to its shamanistic elements. Uh, the Mongols had two main deities, the earth or mother goddess, known as Etujin, who represented fertility, and also John motherfucking Cena, five-time United States champion. Four-time World Tag Team Champion, 16-time World Champion, God of the Mongol Horde, tied with Ric Flair, the Nature Boy, for the world's most championship reigns in WWE history. Woo! No, uh, that's not true. Uh, the Mongol's second primary deity was, of course, not John Cena. Not in this portion of the multiverse, at least. That'd be pretty sweet. Uh, however, Mongolian wrestling, still a huge sport of Mongolia, was popular during the time of Genghis so that weird little uh, diversion into John Cineland wasn't entirely random. <laughs> uh, wrestling was uh, encouraged to make soldiers strong and fit, excellent with hand-to-hand combat. In the style of traditional Mongol- uh, Mongolian wrestling, the match ends when one man loses, when he touches the ground with anything other than his foot. And Genghis, a uh, big fan of wrestling. Genghis also liked to wrestle. Genghis would have loved Chikatilo. What is big deal? I like the, the Russia Genghis Khan. I conquer many small children instead of many nations. I, uh, I show myself out. Uh, back to that secondary primary, or the second primary Mongol deal. Mongol deity now, my God. Uh, their second deity was Tengri, the blue sky or eternal heaven. This latter deity was seen as a protector god and crucially thought by the tribal elites to have given the Mongol people a divine right to rule the entire world. And Genghis Khan and his immediate successors would use this sense of divine right. Uh, the Khan being appointed by God to rule to firmly carry the support of the Mongol people as they kick the shit out of foreign people in places, conquering almost the entire continent of Asia and a portion of Eastern Europe, creating the largest empire the world has ever seen. How many times have we talked about a leader who convinces his people that God wants him to rule? What a, what a great rallying cry, right? We just went over that with Ivan the Terrible a few weeks ago. There are people today who think that uh, the leader of their nation is destined to rule by God. That's so insane to me. Uh, people who who uh, say stuff like that, I feel like tend to be like Genghis and Ivan the Terrible, uh, pretty ruthless dictators. Uh, what was uh, Mo- the Mongol Empire like before Genghis? In the decades before he took over, Mongolia was fragmented. There was no Mongol Empire. Prior to the reign of Genghis, the Mongolian plateau was occupied primarily by five powerful tribal confederations. Genghis's great-grandfather, Kabul Khan, had briefly united much of Mongolia into the Kamag Mongol Confederation, and that helped Genghis's claim to the throne, having a royal lineage. But his grandfather had failed to conquer the nearby Chinese Jin dynasty, and then the confederation fell apart. Genghis Khan was able to consolidate the power of a few relatively you know, small tribes, as his grandfather had, and quickly grow a small army into a powerful fighting force that consolidated all of Mongolia and then conquered foreign lands faster and more decisively than any Mongol had before him, faster and more decisively than the Roman emperors, than any human being before him. And that's why Genghis is mostly known for conquering. And we're going to spend the bulk of this suck talking about his conquering ways, but first, let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about his dick. Not kidding. Next to conquering, Genghis mostly been remembered for fucking. It's one of the reasons present-day Mongolians regard Genghis as the, or regard Genghis as the founding father 
of Mongolia. He's literally the forefather to many a Mongolian, a great, 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 so many more times great grandfather to huge percentages of Mongolians and tons of other people thanks to having three separate penises with matching sets of testicles that were sentient and detachable. You know, so he could be fighting in present-day Afghanistan and he could send like one wing to a concubine in present-day Iran and another to present-day Siberia. Uh, no. Uh, he just did a lot of regular old fucking with a lot of regular old wives. He had around 500 wives and so many children. Only his children with his first wife would be recorded, three sons and five daughters, but it's thought he at least uh, had, uh, you know, or that he had at least several hundred other kids, if not thousands. Uh, harems and concubines were the norm for high-ranking Mongols. Part of it, maybe even most of it, was strategic, a form of empire building. He wasn't necessarily just some sex maniac. Uh, Genghis would bear children with concubines or take wives from different tribes who joined his ranks, and then those sons and daughters would hold, lo- would hold loyalty to him and help keep everything, you know, united. Uh, I wonder if my wife, Lindsay, would let me have affairs if I just explained to her that I wasn't doing it just for me. I was doing it for our empire, right? Hail Lucifina. Baby, I'm not just getting random women pregnant for my own satisfaction. I'm building an empire. I'm building loyalty. Why don't you ever let me build my empires? You say you're supportive. Uh, Genghis would unite so many tribes. An international group of geneticists studying Y chromosome data found that nearly 8% of the men living in the region of the, formal Mon- of the former Mongol Empire carry Y chromosomes that are nearly identical, believed to be descendants of Genghis. About 10% of the current Mongolian population, 300,000 people, uh, about half a percent of the male population of the world thought to be related to Genghis. That's crazy. Also helping to spread Genghis Khan's genes is the fact that a lot of his direct descendants, also big tribe uniters, Khan's son, uh, Tushi, reported to have had 40 sons in addition to an unknown amount of daughters. Genghis's grandson, Kublai Khan, who established the Yuhan dynasty in China, had 22 legitimate sons, reported to have added 30 virgins to his harem each year and produced an unknown amount of daughters and illegitimate sons. So he was uh, also a casual raper. Uh, did Genghis do anything besides conquer and rape? Yes, he did some uh, nice things, actually. We're going to talk about war in a moment. First, let's discuss some of his lesser known, but also very impressive achievements. Uh, Genghis personally wove over 10,000 friendship bracelets during his lifetime. I wish that was true. It was such a great, weird detail. He was an enigma wrapped in a riddle, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, he raped and pillaged. That's, you know, it's fucked up. But he also made a lot of friendship bracelets. Uh, he did unite almost the entire continent of Asia under the so-called Pax Mongolica, or the Mongolian Peace, from the 13th to the 14th centuries, thanks to most of Eurasia being under Mongol rule. A great cultural expansion spread around Europe and Asia. All the many, many kingdoms whose asses Genghis's armies had kicked could no longer fight each other. So now they traded with one another, exchanged cultural ideas, grew artistically, academically, commercially. Ideas flowed back and forth from Europe to Asia like never before in history. After conquering, Genghis and his descendants and top warriors, uh, you know, um, were able to uh, learn how to quickly administer this vast empire. That's impressive. They did this by not killing everyone. They killed the royals but they'd spare a lot of the actual administrators who actually ran the governments and they'd place a handful of important Mongols in the top positions of the new administration so that uh, no one got any funny ideas when their armies moved on to conquer new kingdoms. I bet these remaining officials were more than a little stressed out when they started working for their new Mongol bosses. Right? They usually started working for them directly following a bunch of their own kingdom being brutally destroyed. Can you imagine starting your job that way? Like you think you hate your boss? What if your boss had just killed uh, you know, various members of your family and a bunch of your friends? What if your boss's buddies, he just raped a couple of your sisters or daughters, burned down most of your town. And they were like, Johnson, what's with the doom and gloom attitude? Right? What's, uh, let's turn that frown upside down. Stop dwelling on how I burned your dad alive and go grab me a coffee. Okay. Let's have a good week. 
Genghis and his descendants able to administer their vast new empire by communicating over huge distances like or unlike any empire had ever communicated before them. Time for some more horse talk. Mongol horses weren't just used for war. They didn't just have, uh, you know, their, their blood drank and their, and their, and their wings jerked off to make Mongol beer. Uh, you heard earlier that that's not what their beer is made out of, right? It's made out of horse milk, to be clear. Uh, horses made swift communication possible in Genghis's new empire, carrying written messages through a relay system of stations. Knowledge was power in Genghis's empire, and that's why one of his first orders as ruler was the creation of a Pony Express-like courier system known as the Yam. Yam riders carried messages across a network of huts, could cover as much as 200 miles a day by constantly changing their mounts. In addition to delivering messages, riders also acted as scouts who could monitor enemy forces and keep tabs on assimilated towns and cities. Uh, doing this in the early 13th century, over 500 years before the U.S. Pony Express. A letter sent by the emperor in Beijing could reach the city of Tabriz some 5,000 miles away in about a month. So it wasn't exactly Amazon Prime, but it was a lot better than a, the previous system of just saying, uh, ah, fuck it, he'll never know what we're up to. So just let's just do what we want. Uh, the political unification of Asia under the Mongols resulted in much more trade and transfer and resettlement of artists and craftsmen along the main routes known as the Silk Road. This increased communication and trade from Northeast Asia to Muslim Southwest Asia and Christian Europe and expanded the horizons of all three cultural areas. By the middle of the 13th century, the Mongols, thanks mostly to the conquest of Genghis and the armies he created, had formed the largest contiguous empire in the world, uniting Chinese, Islamic, Iranian, Central Asian, and nomadic cultures within an overarching Mongol sensibility. Uh, contiguous, by the way, means touching in contact. Adding that definition because I always forget what it means. Uh, the Mong Mongol Empire, still the largest contiguous empire the world has ever seen. Uh, Genghis also decreed the adoption of a unified and upgrading writing system for the Mongol Empire called the Uyghur Script. The first writing system created specifically for the Mongolian language. I mean, that in and of itself would be a monumental accomplishment for someone. And it's, uh, it's like an afterthought. I'm talking about Genghis. Genghis also introduced the concept of meritocracy into much of the world, which was novel in many places. He, he appointed soldiers to leadership positions based on proven abilities, not on who their daddies were. So that's a whole new thing in a lot of places. And this thing, this, you know, this uh, uh, aspect of his rule alone greatly strengthened his kingdom. No more soft trust fund generals, only men who fought their way to the top of the heap. Uh, doing this increased loyalty to Genghis, right? You worked harder to please the Khan if you knew that gaining his favor could greatly increase your status and financial position, no matter who your dad was. Genghis also encouraged religious tolerance in his secular Mongol empire. He let people worship whatever God they chose as long as the tributes kept pouring in, kept his people happier, decreased the possibility of uprisings that could destabilize his empire. He also unified Mongol laws across his empire, kept shit cohesive. The Genghis Khan system of law known as the Yasa prohibited theft, adultery, blood feuds, bearing false witness. Might not sound revolutionary, but it was uh, new then to many places. Some versions also incorporated the Mongols' respect for the environment by outlawing bathing in rivers and streams and requiring soldiers to pick up anything that had been dropped in the ground. Uh, dude was pretty green. Uh, according to a study by the Carnegie Institution's Department of Global Energy, Genghis Khan may have been the greatest eco-warrior of all time. The 13th century Mongol leader may have scrubbed 700 tons of carbon from the atmosphere, roughly the amount of carbon dioxide generated in a year through global oil consumption uh, by allowing previously populated and cultivated land to return to carbon-absorbing forest. Land that returned to forest after the Mongols killed all the people who used to farm it. Less pollution through mass death. Like he killed so many people that he substantially changed just the, uh, the amount of forest on earth during his lifetime. 
Now let's talk about uh, more about mass death. Let's start digging into what Genghis Khan and his immediate descendants best known for, kicking the shit out of basically everyone they encountered. Let's peek ahead and preview what's to come in the timeline by looking at one of his many bloody conquests, the Mongol destruction of Bukhara. Bukhara was one of the great cities of the Khwarezmian Empire, located in parts of present-day Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. It was February 1220 CE. Friday mosque was filled with locals in Bukhara. They had gathered to listen to the man who had just captured their city. The Mongol army of 110,000 soldiers had pinned down the uh, Khwarezmian army of 400,000 dudes. 400,000 took a month-long siege by the Mongols to capture the city. One witness who escaped wrote, they came, they raped, they burnt, they slew, they plundered, and they departed. Classic Mongol strike. Defeat, pillage, rape, and then bounce. Uh, Genghis Khan climbed into the pulpit after dismounting from a small horse after the army had defeated the city. An audience of religious leaders, doctors, scholars, other eminent men waited for the strange warrior to speak. Finally, he did, speaking through a translator. And he said to the people gathered in Bukhara, O people, know that you have committed great sins and that the great ones among you have committed these sins. If you ask me what proof I have for these words, I say it is because I am the punishment of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. <laughs> That's some scary shit. And this does speak to his attitude about conquering cities. Genghis believed that if the, uh, if the leader insulted the Mongol empire by, say, like re refusing to pay tribute or something, like, not only was the leader responsible, uh, you know, but everybody in their empire was also equally responsible. So if the leader had insulted him, all of the people of that culture had insulted him. And that way he felt justified in killing as many of the people in that culture as he felt like his army needed to kill to send a, a strong message to other empires to not fucking disobey him. Uh, and he spoke these words after his men had killed over 100,000 enemy soldiers. Then he ordered the rulers of Bukhara to bring him some, some musicians, play him a little music, uh, bring some wine, bring some of that sweet fermented horse cum milk. He's like, guys, I'm thirsty. Go jerk my horse off. Make me some beer. He didn't say that exactly, but he did drink some fermented horse milk. Then he commanded the nobility to bring their riches, gold, precious stones, lay them all at his feet. Then after getting everybody to do all this, enjoying himself for a bit, he just set his men upon the city and killed many of the people who just brought him all that stuff. They took everything they didn't destroy. They butchered unarmed men and children. They raped thousands. They burned the mosque. The fire spread, burned most of the city, left it in ruins. Most of those spared were then herded into groups and forced to march with the conquerors to the next battle where they would be used as human shields. Only beautiful young women and the best artisans and musicians and other skilled people would be completely spared and brought into the Mongol Empire. Sometimes Genghis would show you mercy. Other times he would destroy your city. Again, to send a message, you know, to other places in the empire that I can do this to you too. Submit or I will erase you from the earth. In the war fought against the uh, Khwarezmian Empire, which lasted less than two years, Genghis's men killed an estimated 25 to 30% of the total population, thought to be around 2 million people. If the numbers are accurate, uh, yeah, that's, that's true. All the battle numbers I will reveal today, not agreed upon because ancient chroniclers tended to inflate their numbers, uh, uh, you know, of the enemy. They would inflate the enemy's numbers, reduce their own numbers to make their victories seem more impressive. But if they're accurate, how could 110,000 Mongols defeat an army of 400,000? Let's, let's try and wrap our meat sack brains now around the Khan's epic military, uh, just, you know, strategies and the keys to his conquests. We'll start with their weapons. Spears and lances given to the lowest class of soldier. Spears and lances could be used while riding on a horse or while on foot. Used to be, uh, you know, they were used to be thrown by hand and to impale enemies. 
Mongol warriors also had swords. The typical Mongolian saber was a one-handed curved, carefully forged steel blade. Could be used on horseback. Could also be used on foot with ease. The saber was easier to maneuver and slash with than straight edge blades that had been used before. Due to superior superior metal forging, Genghis's men spared the lives of the best metal workers from the lands they conquered when possible. Uh, they could effectively cut through most armor and uh, helms of the time. The halberd was another bladed weapon used by Mongol warriors, typically only by the wealthiest ones. Mongolian halberds, two sided blades attached to wooden poles around six feet in length. And they could be used on a horse to swing down into foot soldiers on the ground. One swipe of a halberd could and sometimes did slash and kill several enemies. Uh, brutal, man. Just chopping dudes down like some ancient uh, farm, you know, farmer harvesting some wheat. Other weapons the Mongols used were the lasso used to pull enemy horsemen out of the saddle and dagger and the dagger for close combat. For real close combat, uh, Mongols also used uh, the Mongolian mace sometimes. Basically a, a metal club for smashing people's ribs or heads in. The typical mace, roughly 15 inches in length. Weighed a little over two pounds. The most important handheld weapon for Mongol soldiers was their bows. Mongolian composite bow was lightweight and small, used in both hunting and warfare. The bows were made from sinew, birch, the horns of sheep. It's a great weapon for the cavalry to shoot with uh, while on horseback, while in combat. And no one better at shooting from the back of a charging horse in the 13th century than the Mongols. Obviously, bows come with arrows. Mongol warriors used several different types of arrows. The arrow most often used in battle by the Mongols had an iron head, could travel uh, over 300 yards, over three football fields, over 900 feet. Uh, another arrow lighter with a sharper V-shaped tip that wouldn't travel as far, but very effective at short distances at piercing armor. Some Mongol archers also had arrows with holes in them, arrows that made a whistling sound as they flew through the air. They used these uh, to dictate battle maneuvers, telling others which direction to march and fight in. Also had various kinds of poison arrows, some plant-based, some uh, snake venom-based that could kill men hit with an initial non-lethal shot just a few hours. These guys didn't half-ass it when it came to war. Didn't half-ass it when it came to arrows. Like, oh, you just showed up to the battle with one kind of arrow? What, are you fucking new? You know that we're the Mongols, right? Why don't, you, why don't you head back to your kingdom and then just keep on riding until you reach another kingdom that we don't plan on stomping out of existence today. Uh, the Mongolians had a lot of different kinds of arrows. Brought a uh, large total of arrows also to each battle. Mongolian quiver would hold between 30 and 60 arrows. And while out on a campaign, the typical Mongol warrior would take two to three quivers, 90 to 180 total arrows. One would be located to the left of the rider attached by his, uh, to his belt by iron hooks for quick access. And to quickly fire one arrow after another, the Mongolian, uh, or able, excuse me, to, to quickly fire one arrow after another, the Mongolian bow was the closest thing back then to a machine gun. Uh, shields, interestingly, aren't often mentioned in accounts of Mongols in battle. I guess hard to fire arrows super fast when you're trying to hold a shield. It feels like they, they felt the best defense was a strong offense. Mongols had a lot of shit to hurt you with. I, I highly recommend doing some Google image searching to see what all this stuff looked like. As far as armor goes, they didn't have much during the reign of Genghis. Uh, Genghis uh, once said to have issued all his horsemen with thick and tightly woven silk vests. As an arrow hitting silk does not break the silk, but ends up embedding the arrow in the flesh wrapped in silk allowing the arrow to be removed by gently teasing the silk open. These silk vests function much like the padded armor used by European and uh, Byzantine soldiers of the era. Also worth a Google search. When I first read that they wore silk vests, I kept picturing something out of the 90s, like some cheesy Saved by the Bell type of vest. Right, And I was like, how, how would wearing some sleeveless silk shirt help keep an arrow out of you? How would dressing like a, like a 90s male stripper, like some Chippendale, keep you from getting hurt in battle? And then I saw the picture. I was like, oh, okay. That makes more sense. Uh, now let's talk about siege equipment. 
If you're going to take down a city in the 13th century, you needed some decent siege equipment. You can't bow and arrow your way through a giant stone wall. You can't throw in a sweet silk vest, drink a little horse milk, right? Swing around your banana hammock and convince your enemies to throw down their drawbridges. Uh, the Mongols learned how to use siege machines during the life of Genghis Khan. Prior to Genghis, most of their fighting was carried out against fellow nomads who did not live in walled cities. So they didn't really have any experience attacking walled cities. The Mongols built, or more accurately, foreigners they'd captured or foreigners who had defected to their armies built. Some of the first known catapults, trebuchets, bombs, even some of the first cannons. In 1232, when the Mongols besieged the Jin capital of Kaifeng, they even used gunpowder-based weapons against the Chinese. Uh, gunpowder had been introduced to the Mongols by the Song Dynasty way back in the late 10th century, would not be commonly used in European battles until the 14th century. Uh, how did the Mongols get all their weapons to these battles? Mostly via Bactrian camels. The big, two-humped, goofy-as-shit-looking Bactrian camel. This is like the, this is the ugliest camel in the world. Uh, native to the steppes of Asia, Central Asia, gave them uh, a big advantage against many opponents. It allowed them to simply move much more stuff a lot faster than their mostly camelless enemies could. A thousand pound Bactrian camel can carry uh, 440 to 530 pounds worth of goods compared to a horse, not being able to catch more uh, or, or not being able to carry much more, excuse me, than its rider. Now, these big camels can pull anywhere from 881 to uh, 1,322 pounds of weapons and supplies for 18 to 24 miles per day, compared to a 600 pound Mongolian horse being able to pull closer to 200 pounds. So they're uh, much more effective. The Mongol armies brought thousands of these camels and horses with them for and all the supplies they would need for extended sieges. And these camels could handle any weather, any altitude, go for several weeks in a row without drinking any water. Horse can't last for more than five days without water. And speaking of horses, horse milk, nectar of champions. Uh, seriously, speaking of horses, uh, they were the Mongolians' most useful weapon. The Mongolians began to domesticate horses around 1400 BCE, over two and a half millennia before Genghis. At an early age, a Mongolian warrior would train with horses in order to hunt and herd with them. Then when the warrior would turn 15 years old, following a long-held Mongolian custom, they would make love to their horse. The young man and the horse would go out into the steppe alone for seven days and seven nights. The teen warrior would bring no clothes to keep warm, no weapons to fight with, just their bravery and their horse and their love. And the Mongol warrior would survive by sometimes drinking its milk, sometimes drinking its blood, and by making love to it all the time, cuddling close enough each cold desert night to keep from freezing to death, each warrior could choose the sex of their love horse. Mare or stallion didn't matter. What mattered was the bond, the lifelong bond between two mammals developing out on the steppe under the stars. That was the Mongol way. And it's from this custom that ancient Mongolia's most famous saying comes from. Any horse can ride you into battle, but only the horse you fuck will fight for you. Of course, that's not true. Uh, at the age of 15, now, now the uh, young Mongolian, God, I wish that was true. That'd be so fucking ridiculous. Uh, at the age of 15, the young Mongolian who trained with horses for years would uh, go into the army if they were skilled enough. Right, Genghis, back to that meritocracy. He didn't just let anybody into his you know, army. He had to prove that you were you're good enough on a horse, good enough to fight. Had to earn a position. Uh, once warriors were ready for battle, they were given three to seven horses to ride in war. With this many horses, Mongol warriors could remain mobile even if one or two of their mounts were lost or exhausted. Uh, the Mongol horse, just a, a great horse for fighting too. The Mongol is native breed to, you know, and to, to Mongolia, indigenous to Mongolia. Hasn't changed much since the time of Genghis Khan. Nomads living in, in the traditional Mongol fashion still have more than three million total horses. Roughly as many Mongolian horses in Mongolia as people. Mongolian horses, short, stocky, with strong legs, big heads, 
weighing five to 600 pounds, renowned for their stamina. They have small bodies compared to most other uh, horse breeds, but they can just, they can go for a long time without having to stop. Excuse me. They can gallop for 10 kilometers over six miles without a break. Now let's talk about tactics. Like most steppe armies, the Mongolians, um, primarily light horse archers. Via their superior horsemanship, they were able to stay just out of reach of their opponent's weapons. Then they'd use their speed to engage in hit-and-run tactics, showering enemies in waves of arrows and rushing in for some close-up melee, then bouncing back and showering them with more uh, arrows. They would generally only engage in close combat after they'd broken enemy formations by turning the sky into a giant dark cloud of deadly arrows. They uh, utilized uh, often what was known as the Parthian shot during battle, a shot fired during a feigned retreat. Feigned retreat was a classic tactic of steppe warfare practiced since ancient times. A token force charged the enemy, then retreated, pulling the enemy after them in pursuit. The retreat might extend a great distance in order to stretch the enemy's ranks and formations, then to prearranged location. Other forces attack from the flanks while the initial force wheels around and attacks the enemy that's all extended and, you know, all messed up from the front. Uh, perhaps the most renowned use of the feigned retreat took place in 1223 when Mongol generals encountered a combined army of Kipchak Turks and Rus along the Dnieper River. The Mongols retreated, luring the Russians several days deeper into the steppe until they reached the small Kalka River. Crazy. Had these guys chase them, you know, thousands of guys for days right into a trap. And then the, you know, the Mongol force had been waiting, promptly swept in and destroyed their enemies. So they just lured these guys for several days to another Mongol army that just bombarded them and destroyed them. Uh, the Mongols also engaged in other types of surprise attacks, ambushes, and encirclements. They would mix it up. One of the biggest advantages they possessed was that their enemies never knew what kind of uh, attack they were going to face. Now, let's talk more about these arrows. <clears throat> Excuse me. I wasn't just being dramatic earlier when I talked about the Mongols turning the sky into a dark cloud that rained arrows. The arrow storm, uh, the most common effect and effective tactic routinely practiced by the Mongols in battle. They would shoot a hail of arrows in such numbers that it seemed to be a phenomenon of nature to those who lived to talk about it. Roughly 300 yards out, they're shooting still accurate enough to seriously disrupt enemy, enemy, form, ah, enemy formations. Come on, mouth. Uh, in the course of the arrow storm, archers did not aim at a specific target. They just loosed their arrows at a high trajectory into a predetermined killing zone or targeted area. This actually didn't kill that many enemy soldiers, but it wreaked havoc on morale. And soldiers watched wave after wave after wave of arrows rain down upon them and their comrades while they were too far away to strike back at the Mongols. Uh, the Mongols' arrows could often shoot uh, over 100 yards farther than their opponents' arrows could, which was a huge advantage. Enemies would just have to eat a storm of arrows, you know, for like 100 yards or more if they were charging the Mongols before they got a chance to strike back. I mean, how frustrating would that be? Hunker down under your shield on some field, Hope that you're, you know, holding it at the right angle to keep from being hit by one of thousands of arrows raining down on your location. Knowing that if you, you know, stand up and charge, there's an even better chance that one of those arrows is going to mow you down before you can get close enough to strike back. You got to like run through these arrows for 100 yards or more just to then start firing your arrows back at these assholes. The Mongols would bring enough of these arrows, you know, that they could really take their time, really wear down an enemy from afar, which uh, greatly reduced their own casualties. They would also sometimes surround a city or an army and, uh, and not fire arrows and just wait, just kind of fuck with the people mentally, right? They knew that they were exhausting their enemies by forcing them to remain vigilant. They just let them sit there and stew, knowing that the constant stress of anticipating their attack was mentally wearing them down. And mind games, the Mongols love to play mind games with their enemies. And then there was the Mongol siege warfare. Let's talk about how the Mongols used those siege weapons we mentioned earlier. 
Uh, in the early days of the Mongol conquest, siege warfare was a weakness that his, uh, Gen Genghis and his generals had to overcome. Genghis had no idea how to siege a walled city you know, when he first left Mongolia to fight the Jin. But thanks to some Chinese engineers, Genghis and the Mongols figured it out. And the more walled cities they destroyed, the more talented foreign engineers they were able to retrieve from these cities and in incorporate them into their ranks and get even better at sieging. Uh, for the entire existence of the Mongol Empire, they were dependent on Muslim and Chinese engineers who manned and manufactured artillery and other siege equipment. The Mongols would often first attack a city's surrounding villages and smaller cities uh, before getting their siege on. Then they could focus all their energy on sieging the main city without worrying about being attacked by the surrounding armies. When they came up against an inaccessible city or fortress, the Mongols often first set up a blockade in order to starve an enemy into surrendering. Uh, the Mongols would use massive amounts of prisoners captured in previous battles to help their siege efforts as well. They'd use these people as human shields or forced labor or both. After seizing a town or village, the Mongols often divided the population into units of 10. And each Mongol soldier received a unit. And then they would march these units to the next city. And when the captives arrived at the next city to be attacked, they forced them to fill up the moat or defensive trenches with stones, other materials they would have to go gather, bundles of straw, wood, debris, whatever, so that the Mongol warriors could then reach the walls. Brilliant and ruthless. Can you imagine a modern-day equivalent? This would be like if some foreign army captured a lot of your country's soldiers and civilians and then rigged them with uh, suicide bombs and then marched them back into your nation uh, before attacking you. And now you have to risk uh, them blowing you up or you have to kill your own people. Right? So these people, like, uh, to really paint this picture, you got these, these captives march in front of the Mongols, and then when they get to the city, they, yeah, they just make them go grab a bunch of, uh, you know, wood or stones or whatever. And then the Mongols, they hold back out of, the, out of range of your weapons. And then all these peasants, they walk to the walls of your city or to defensive trenches, you know, outside of your city. And they start filling them up so the Mongols can then take their horses over the top of them so the Mongols can reach your city. It's fucking crazy, right? <laughs> to stop the moats from being filled with these people's wood and rock and debris. Ancient defenders would have to execute their own people, men, women, children. And how'd you like to be one of those unlucky fuckers marching towards the walls, right? Some man, woman, or child carrying stones, throwing them in the moat, not knowing if you're going to take an arrow shot by either one of your own people or by the Mongols, knowing that if you stop carrying the rocks, you're going to lose any value to the Mongols and definitely just be shot. Captives also forced to dig trenches, erect defenses, uh, undertake a variety of other tasks that often put the captives in between the Mongols and the army the Mongols were fighting, so they used their captives extensively. During a siege, the Mongols compelled prisoners uh, to build siege engines, presumably uh, presumably under the direction of their Chinese or Persian engineers. Uh, with these uh, engines and their own bows, the Mongols maintained a constant barrage on the city they were sieging. Engineers and soldiers working in shifts in order to prevent their enemies from ever being able to rest, right? They would wear down their enemies mentally. The boulders never stopped smashing into the city walls. The arrows never stopped flying over the walls, right? So their enemy could never rest and regroup all day, all night. The Mongols also sometimes used flammable oil in their attacks, shot burning arrows, another type of arrow uh, to burn down cities. We learned about uh, burning down the cities in the Ivan the Terrible Suck a few weeks ago when the Mongols burned down Moscow. Now back to using these prisoners, Mongolian prisoners forced to do stuff like use battering rams to smash down enemy gates. So messed up, but so smart, right? Give foreign captives the most dangerous assignments. Let them stand under a castle wall or on a drawbridge, you know, taking a battering ram and smashing it into a gate while your skilled warriors rest out of harm's way and prepare for battle. And if the captives tried to refuse any of these assignments, you know, again, the Mongols, they just killed them. You know, it's not like they had an HR department to complain to. Uh, hey, Ben, uh, what can I do for you? Uh, hello, Mr. Mongol. Uh, I just want to file a complaint about how I was treated at the siege the other day. I was, for, first off, I, I wasn't given my 15-minute break mid-shift. 
And then uh, when the guy holding the battering ram opposite me was killed by some burning oil being poured on him by some guy in the castle wall, uh, no one replaced him for a good 20 minutes. And I for sure tweaked something in my back. Uh, Might have strained my hamstring. And I'd, I'd like some time off, a little bit of compensation. I, I'm going to need some money for physical therapy, some massages, uh, some short-term disability cash, you know, to keep food in my, my belly till I can work again. Uh, ben, I hear what you're saying, and, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fucking skin you alive. And I'm going to bury your kids in the moat. I'm going to have some guys rape your wife to death unless you're back out there holding the goddamn battery ram in two minutes or less. Take care of yourself. Uh, the Mongols would use battery rams, catapults, other siege machinery to break down the walls of the city. They would dig tunnels underneath city walls, use gunpowder to crumble them. If none of that worked. They'd get creative, do stuff like divert nearby rivers to flood the inhabitants of the walled city. Once the city's walls were breached, then the Mongols would put on their armor and attack. And they would often do that at night to further reduce the casualties of actual Mongol warriors. Uh, maybe the most effective siege weapon the Mongols had was their reputation. They would make examples, as I said earlier, of certain cities, utterly destroy them. And then, you know, more cities in the region would, would hear about that and surrender without a fight, hoping to be spared. At their height, the Mongols were feared like no other army. According to various chroniclers who fled sack cities just in time to save themselves, the Mongols often left no one alive when they conquered a city and people knew about it. In addition to intimidating future armies into surrendering, these massacres discouraged revolts and rebellions in the lands they'd conquered. The conquered people knew all too well what the consequences of revolt would be, having their city erased from the earth. According to anthropologist Thomas Barfield, the Mongols were extremely conscious of their small numbers, and they employed terror as a tool to discourage resistance against them. Cities that surrendered and then revolted were put to the sword. The Mongols could not maintain strong garrisons and so preferred to wipe out entire areas that appeared troublesome. <laughs> Again, so so cold and just pragmatic. They're like, ah, we don't have we don't have time to imprison people. We're not gonna we're not gonna deal with that. So if they're a problem, we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna kill them all. In addition to everything we've already talked about, the Mongols use propaganda, often spread rumors in advance to exaggerate the you know, the size of their army, stuff like that. In 1258, Monkey, grandson of Genghis. Uh, another Khan invaded Sichuan with 40,000 troops, but his army or his enemy thought he was coming with 100,000. He made it look like it was 100,000 troops. In an earlier instance of psychological manipulation, when Genghis fought the Naimans in 1204, he ordered his soldiers to set up camp on the steps of Western Mongolia, and uh, he commanded each soldier to light five campfires. So the enemy would think his army was five times as big as it actually was. Um, they also did stuff like stir up dust behind their lines by dragging branches tied to the tails of their horses to create the illusion of approaching reinforcements where they would do stuff like put dummies on spare horses, make their enemy think that they had many more uh, warriors than they did. Again, they're just so good at war. Uh, the Mongols also weakened their opponents by promoting discord or rebellion amongst their people by gaining the support of oppressed minorities, playing rivals off of one another. Uh, they would boost the morale of their own army through religion. Like they would ask Tengri for favor on the battlefield in the same way that Muslim and Christian armies uh, asked uh, their gods for favor during battle. Maybe what I found most impressive about the Mongols regarding their warfare abilities was the thoroughness of their preparation. When preparing for war, they would take several steps to make sure they were ready to win. They would conduct a careful census before battle in order to properly identify exactly how many troops they had. They would accumulate intelligence reports uh, on their opponents, find out exactly how large their armies were. After sufficient intelligence had been obtained, they would make a declaration of hostilities. Uh, the declarations of war varied initially, but by the peak of their empire, when they were kicking everyone's ass, they would give their enemy two choices. Plan A was surrender. Recognize the great Khan as the king of your king. Give the Mongols a yearly tribute, bunch of money, 
you know, uh, women, et cetera, or plan B. You cannot agree to plan A and feel the full wrath of the Mongol horde and be obliterated. <laughs> this is obviously a little simplified for the sake of keeping the info moving, but really this was the deal. The Mongols would send some ambassadors to a city they hadn't encountered yet. These guys would have to try and meet with the king or emperor or queen or whoever's in charge there and be like, hey, first off, I just want to say, please don't shoot the messenger. Now that, now that I've said that, I, I got some bad news for you. Uh, if the foreign leader did not accept plan A at a Mongol assembly, the strategy for the upcoming war would be, uh, you know, talked about and communicated until it was agreed upon. Uh, and then commanders would be chosen. Points of rendezvous would be established. Troops would be mobilized. According to Dennis Senor, pro former professor emeritus of Central Asian Studies at the Department of Central Eurasian Studies at Indiana University. That's a long fucking title. So, I'm sorry, what do you do? Uh, I'm the professor emeritus of Central Asian Studies uh, at the Department of Central Eurasian Studies at Indiana University. Uh, you could have just said history professor. Uh, he said, Mongol strategy at its best was based on a very careful planning of the military operations to be performed. At the essence of it lay a very rigid timetable to which all Mongol commanders were expected to adhere strictly. They didn't fuck around with any aspect of war. Uh, once mobilization for war began, the Mongol armies uh, would follow usually several different routes of advance instead of just one. During the invasion of Russia, generals Subutai and Batu and Monki approached from three different directions before converging into one big army at the time deemed most strategically advantageous. Because their forces marched in smaller detachments for most of the journey to the battle, uh, they could get there quicker. The advance wasn't slowed down by an enormous column stretching for miles. Another advantage of traveling this way was that their opponents then had a harder time figuring out exactly how big the Mongol army was. Once the Mongols defeated an, an enemy, part of their overall war strategy was to kill the opponent's leaders to prevent another war from breaking out. They took this very seriously. Hard to lead a revolt if you're dead. Uh, they would track people down for days, weeks, if necessary, to find and kill leaders after the battle was already won. You know, leaders who had fled during the battle. Genghis Khan started doing this after learning the hard way what can happen when you don't in some early unification battles in Mongolia. He had failed to eliminate some opposing leaders a few times, and then they would regroup with their forces, rise up against him again, and he'd have to defeat them all over again. And after that, the merciless pursuit of enemy commanders just became part of the Mongol standard operational procedure. And speaking of commanders, let's talk about Genghis's secret weapon. Maybe the best military general of all time. Subutai Ba'atur. Subutai, uh, born in 1175, died in 1248. A general, primary military strategist for Genghis Khan and also for his son, uh, the subsequent leader uh, of the Mongol Empire, Ogadai Khan. This guy directed more than 20 campaigns, won at least 65 major battles, during which he conquered or overran more territory than any other commander in history. The dude never lost a battle ever in his whole life. Uh, Paul Buell, history professor and, and long life, by the way, uh, Paul Buell, history professor and Mongol historian, has said of Subutai, no Mongol general played a greater role uh, than Subutai Bautar in establishing and maintaining the early Mongol empire. Trusted commander and retainer of Genghis, later highly respected servant of Ogudai, and Gayak uh, Subutai uh, served with great distinction in every phase of Mongolian national development during the first four decades of empire. And Gayak was uh, another subsequent Khan. Uh, when he first entered the service of Genghis, known then as uh, Temujin, the realm of that minor Mongol chieftain comprised only a few families. This is pretty cool too. It's like when he first started working for Genghis, it was just like, you know, a couple hundred soldiers. In his old age, Subutai saw a mighty dominion stretching from the borders of Hungary to the Sea of Japan, from the outskirts of Novgorod to the Persian Gulf 
and the Yangtze River. He had no small part in creating it. Subutai returned to Mongolia from the Song Campaign in 1248 when he was 72 years old, spent the last few months of his life at home in the vicinity of modern-day uh, Ulaanbaatar, dying peaceful at the age, or dying peacefully at the age of 72. If not for having to return to Mongolia after the death of Ogudai Khan, one of Genghis' sons, uh, to help to decide who the next ruler of the Mongol Empire would be, there's a good chance that earlier in his career, Subutai would have conquered all of Europe. Let's talk about that for a moment. How, uh, let's talk about how only an untimely death and maybe some really, really bad weather saved Europe from the Mongols. Genghis and his hordes swept across Asia after a series of successful exploratory forays into Hungary and Poland. Of course they were successful in Poland. Everyone conquered Poland. If you get that, you get that. Uh, it seemed like the rest of Europe was theirs for the taking, and then they just abruptly returned to Asia. Why? Well, because their leader died. Right, because uh, uh, Ogadai Khan, son of Genghis, died unexpectedly in December of 1241. Genghis had died years earlier, and now there was a power struggle to decide the new Khan. Uh, Ogadai dr- uh, died after a late night drinking session. Uh, too much of that sweet horse milk. Maybe actually died from a stroke or organ failure, maybe poisons. We don't know since uh, corners didn't exist. And so this uh, badass general, right, and all the other important Mongols had to head back to Mongolia to help decide who was going to rule the empire. And under new leadership, uh, conquering Europe was no longer a priority. So had Ogadai not died when he died, right? this kick-ass general, Subutai, he was ready to go fuck Europe up, and he might have done exactly that. All right. Now we know a little bit about the Mongols, enough to give Genghis's life uh, a lot of context. Always context. Can't really understand someone's life until you understand the times they lived in. Time to get to know more about Genghis himself, which of course will lead to learning even more about the Mongols in today's Time Suck timeline. But first, quick word from our sponsors. And big thanks to any of you who use our codes and landing pages to get these deals. It allows us to keep getting sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour, but what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. 
All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs, Hero Croissant, or the one gram of net carbs, Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now, allow me to say hail Nimrod and hit my TIMESUCK timeline button. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. On November 14, 1162 CE, Temujin, later known as the Great Genghis Khan, probably born in Delun Bulldog, near the border between modern-day Mongolia and Siberia. Not even a town there today. Wasn't a town there then. Unlike most great leaders of the past, he wasn't born in some great city or a city at all. He was born in a Mongol uh, gare out in the open steppe. He was born near the modern-day Mongolian capital of Ulan Bator. Uh, legend has it he was born with a blood clot in his fist, a traditional sign of a great future leader. Nice. Uh, I was born a skinny baby with jaundice and a big weird shaped head. I wonder what destiny would have been expected of me. This yellow, sickly, skinny monster-headed child will be a great leader. <laughs> yeah, right. He'll be cannon fodder. 
We will name him Retajun, which means he who dies first in battle. Uh, Temujin comes from the Mongol word Temur, meaning of iron. Temujin basically meant blacksmith. And while I said Genghis was born in 1162, we, we think his exact birth date unknown could be off by as much as five years. A uh, good place to note that there, there are only a few ancient sources that speak of Genghis Khan, and they're often contradictory. Uh, there's one Mongol source, only one, uh, written by a Mongol, The Secret History of the Mongols. Uh, and then there's a variety of contemporary accounts, which are mostly like, oh, he's fucking scary and he killed everybody. Uh, Temujin, the son of uh, Yasuji Batar, major chief of the Kameg Mongol Confederation, sometimes considered the predecessor of the Mongol Empire. This confederation was a loose union of numerous tribes in the area. Genghis was the first son of Holun, second wife of his father. According to the uh, important historical book, The Secret History of the Mongols, Temujin named after a Tatar chief his father had just captured. Temujin had three brothers, one sister, and two half-brothers. Like many of the nomads of Mongolia, Temujin's early life was difficult. When he was only nine, Temujin's father took him to live with the tribe of an important rival clan whose daughter, Borte, he was arranged to marry. Temujin was to live there until he reached the marriageable age of 12. Yeek! 12! My God, my daughter's 12 right now. That's fucking ridiculous to me. To think of her being... My son is 14. It's ridiculous for me to think about him being married. It's, oh, my God. So young back then. After dropping off his son while he was returning home, Temujin's uh, father then came across a tribal Mongols. He'd had some skirmishes with in the past. They seem cool now. They invited him to share some food with them. He's like, all right, these guys seem, these guys seem pretty good. I don't know. They seem nice now. Uh, they have dinner, and then uh, Temujin's dad dies because they poisoned him. So apparently he misjudged, you know, how good of terms they were actually on. Uh, whoopsies. Genghis would later avenge his father's death by killing all the men of this particular tribe. Uh, the exact date of Yusuji's death is unknown. After his father's poison, nine-year-old Temujin returns home to take over his father's role as chieftain of the tribe. Uh, in his mind, that's what he's going to do. But the tribe's like, yeah, right. You're nine. Get the fuck out of here. You know, and they kick him out. Kick him. Uh, tough break. I picture this little nine-year-old, you know, stomping into some big Mongol gear, you know, big tent, planting his feet defiantly, putting his fists against his hips all, hey, fellas, I'm in charge now. Let's avenge my father's death. And then some big, important Mongol just grabs him and lifts him off the ground by the back of his pants and back of his shirt, walks him back to the tent entrance, just fucking tosses him out. Get out of here, kid. We don't have time for this bullshit. Uh, Temujin's tribe casts out Temujin, his mom, his siblings, forces them to live in poverty and with no protection for the next several years these nomads live on wild fruit ox carcasses marmots other small game that temujin and his little uh, siblings can kill at some point during the banishment genghis murders for the first time in an argument during a hunting expedition temujin and his brother kassar decide to stalk and kill their older brother bater some records say that bater liked to take whatever young temujin killed or caught and that pissed him off he was accused of hoarding food while other family members were near starvation. Other records say that Bater, uh, as the eldest male in the family, planned on exercising his right to claim Holun, Genghis's mom, as his wife, because it wasn't uh, Bater's uh, uh, mom, right? It wasn't uh, his blood mom. And Genghis, you know, he didn't care for that, which it is, it is pretty fucked up. It's like, bro, fuck, no, come on, seriously? That's your stepmom. That's my mom. Please don't fuck my mom. I don't want a brother daddy. Uh, however it went down, legend has it that Temujin fought and killed his older half-brother, beginning his reputation as a great warrior. Things go from bad to worse then for young Temujin. Sometime between 1175 and 1177, he's captured by a rival clan. Once an ally of his father's, he's enslaved. The world's mightiest leader, spending his youth abandoned and enslaved. Uh, finally, one night, a sympathetic guard helps him escape. Years later, that guard's son, a man named Chalon, would become one of Genghis's generals. 
Uh, around 1183, Temujin marries Borte, honoring the agreement made by his father, making an alliance with her tribe. She waited for him. He's back in business. He's worked himself back into a position of power after banishment and enslavement. Uh, with permission of her father, uh, he takes Borte and, and her mother to live in his family gear. Then shortly into their marriage to Borte, uh, uh, in his marriage to Borte, a tribe known as the Merkits attacks Genghis's family's camp at dawn and kidnaps her, takes his wife. Son of a bitch. Things were just starting to go well. Now his wife gets kidnapped. And then she's given to one of these, uh, one of this tribe's warriors as a spoil of war. Double son of a bitch. Now his wife is being raped by a rival warrior. Uh, as you can imagine, Temujin, he's not thrilled. Uh, he said that his bed was made empty and his breast was torn apart. And he probably also said, I'm gonna fucking kill this motherfucker. Uh, time to go to war for the first time. In 1184, roughly 22-year-old Temujin uh, turns to powerful clan leader Togrul, also known as Wang Khan, Khan of the Karates, uh, to support him in getting his wife back. And Wang Khan offers him 20,000 Karate warriors, suggests that Temujin involve his childhood friend Jamuka in the battle. Jamuka had become a Khan of his own tribe, the Jadaran. Both Jamuka and Wang Khan were blood brothers to Temujin's father. Dad's old-time connections paying off here. Uh, together, these men and 20,000 warriors make the trek into enemy territory to fight the Merkits tribal confederation. Many scholars describe this event as one of the key crossroads in Temujin's life, moves him along the path towards being a conqueror. Had his wife not been taken from him, he wouldn't have felt the need to amass an army to get her back. Had he not ever amassed an army, there would be no Mongol empire. Uh, the secret history of the Mongols describes the battle scene where Genghis gets his wife bike, uh, gets his wife bi bike, he gets his wife's bike back. Uh, did I mention that? Uh, you probably didn't hear that in your history books. The, yes, the battle was about his wife, but mostly it was about his wife's bike because he was like, she's got a fucking sweet-ass bike and it's the only bike in the world because bikes hadn't been invented yet, you know, but somehow they had this one bike and he was like, I want to ride it and they're like, no, nah, we took it. He's like, oh, I'll get it back and he gets 20,000 soldiers to get that goddamn bike back and he's so happy. No, um, he's getting his wife back and this book says, as the pillaging and plundering went on, Temujin moved among the people that were hurriedly escaping, calling Borte, Borte. And so he came upon her, for Lady Borte was among those fleeing people. She heard his voice, recognized it, got off her cart, came running towards him. Although it was still night, Lady Borte recognized uh, Temujin's reins and tether and grabbed them. It was moonlight. He looked at her, recognized Lady Borte, and they fell into each other's arms. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. She'd been held captive for eight months. She was pregnant with Jochi, heavily pregnant with her first son. She'd give a... She would give birth to him just after being rescued. Because of those circumstances, the question of his lineage always uh, put under a microscope. He'd become an accomplished a military commander, but people would always wonder if he uh, was actually Genghis's blood son. Uh, that didn't matter to Genghis. He would claim Jochi as his own son. And then Borte would later give him three more sons. Since Borte was considered his principal wife, only their sons were considered his heirs. Uh, she would remain at Genghis's side for his entire life. Although he took many other wives, as we mentioned earlier, she would always be his most important wife. How, how romantic. Sure, his dick loved a lot of different ladies, but you know his heart? His heart, his heart only got hard for one. I wonder if you ever wrote that in a card for her. I wonder if I should write that to Lindsay. But hey, baby. <laughs> sure, sometimes I get boners, you know, when I'm out around in public seeing things. But my heart, my heart only gets hard for you. Love you. I don't think that would go well. Right after the successful rescue of Borte and the rout of the Merkits, Genghis and Jamuka, who are also blood brothers, uh, who had been put in charge of Wang Khan's army, began to drift apart, each having different ideas of how Mongolia should be run. And what was all this blood brother business, by the way? Uh, just symbolism, tradition, the Mongols would marry their children to members of other tribes to strengthen their relationships with neighbors. 
Uh, Mongol leaders would often take wives from other tribes to strengthen alliances there, and warriors could, you know, pledge allegiance to one another and become blood brothers. Not sure exactly what ceremony, if any, took place when that happened. Might have been as simple as just cutting each other's hands and shaking on it or something like that. Anyway, blood brothers Jamukha and Genghis began drifting apart, mostly because Jamukha supported the traditional Mongolian aristocracy when it came to, you know, who got the highest positions in Mongolian society. Well, while Genghis believed in a new system of meritocracy, right? We mentioned that earlier, where men could rise up and become high-ranking generals, you know, have high positions in society, regardless of who their dads were. Uh, this philosoph- uh, philosophical difference meant each group, you know, attracted a different uh, type of follower. The old guard followed Jamukha. Everyone else followed Temujin. Soon there were two massive armies, one led by Genghis, the other led by Jamukha. Uh, the blood brothers had become rivals. In 1186, when Genghis is around 24, after his decisive defeat and rescue of his wife, an important Mongolian shaman declares that the eternal blue sky has set the world for Temujin to rule. Right now, now God's on his side. Word spreads. Mongol families begin to quickly join his army. Jamukha doesn't like this. Nobody wants to hear about God anointing their rival as the one true leader. It's never been on anyone's wish list. You know, no one's ever thought, I hope to live a long, happy life. I have enough, uh, have enough money to feel secure in my retirement. And I hope God anoints my rival as the one true leader. Uh, threatened by Genghis's rise, Jamukha surprise attacks Genghis with an army of 30,000 warriors. Genghis gathers his followers to defend at the last second, but caught off guard. He doesn't have enough time to prepare, and he's decisively beaten in the Battle of the 13 Sides. Really the only significant battle where he'll ever be beaten. Uh, Jamuka must have been pumped, right? Who's destined to lead? Uh, The guy whose fucking ass I just kicked? I don't think so. Me! Now bring me my harem and give me some of that horse milk. Uh, Wang Khan is exiled. Genghis, some of his men and their families able to flee. After the victory, Jamuka horrifies and alienates some of his followers and potential followers when he boils 70 of Genghis's captured military leaders alive in cauldrons. A lot of the Mongols are like, damn, man, that's, that's fucked up. I mean, I know we're Mongols, but, but boiled alive? That's something we do to non-Mongols. I mean, come on, dude. Uh, following this defeat, Genghis spends the next 10 or so years kind of licking his wounds, rebuilding an army, and vowing never to be defeated again. And probably also fucking a whole bunch. Uh, sometime in 1187, his second son, uh, Chagatai, is born. His third son, Ogadai, born in 1189. His fourth son, uh, Toyuai, born in 1190. In 1197, Genghis makes a new alliance with his old pal, the old exiled Wang Khan. Uh, Wang had rebuilt himself into a powerful clan leader again. He plots his return to power. And Genghis is like, hey, dude, I know shit went south with us, you know, with the Battle of the 13 Sides. But this time, this time we're not going to lose, okay? This time... Pinky swear, no one's getting boiled alive. No one's getting put in a cauldron. Uh, He and Wang Khan partner with the Jin Dynasty of China, further build up their strength through a few minor battles. And then in 1200 CE, the friendship between Genghis and Wang Khan begins to falter. Hard to keep fellow Mongol leaders as close friends when you uh, desire to be the one who rules them all. Wang Khan's son, Sengum, envied Genghis's growing power and relationship with his dad, and he planned to assassinate him. Records suggest that despite the relationship Wang Khan and Genghis had built, including Genghis are reportedly saving Wang's life numerous times in battle. Wang just, you know, he, he chose to side with his son and betray his longtime friend. And Genghis Khan began to realize the tides were shifting against him when Wang refused to marry his daughter to Genghis' son, uh, Jochuai. Uh, the insult led to war between the two. To prepare for battle, Wang Khan allied with Genghis's old friend, Jamuka. That motherfucker partnered with the guy who boiled his generals alive. Two of his dad's old blood brothers, one of his blood brothers, allied against him. And then they fight in the Battle of the Burning Sands. They have so many good battle names. 
That's a great battle name. Battle of the Burning Sands. That's way better than the Battle of the Hot but Not Too Hot Sands. Way better than the Battle of the Really Pleasant Temperature Sands. Uh, Jamuka barely escapes. Dirty old Wang gets his ass beat in this battle, loses his kingdom, killed by a soldier shortly after fleeing. Jamuka and Genghis then battle for three more years. Finally, in 1206, Jamuka is betrayed by several of his own men and captured and handed over to Genghis. According to that secret history book, Genghis Khan then offered his friendship back to his old blood brother, Jamuka. After years of fighting, he still didn't want to kill him. He wanted to rule by Jamuka's side, right? right? Wanted them to rule together. He loved this dude, but Jamuka had no interest in being Genghis's co-leader. He refused Genghis's offer saying there can only be one sun in the sky. And then he asked for a noble death. He was a hard ass dude. And a noble death back then was to die without spilling blood, typically by having your back broken. Yeek. Some hardcore shit. That sounds way more painful than just having your head cut off or your throat slashed. Dying of a broken back, I mean, I guess that's going to involve a lot of internal bleeding and probably take a long time. Be very painful. It said that Genghis buried Jamuka with the golden belt, a belt he'd given to him years earlier when they'd become blood brothers. It's kind of sad. Genghis didn't want to fight his brother. He wanted to fight with him. And then the guy refused and he's torn up about it. And maybe that helped him turn into a psychopath because he would become pretty ruthless after this. No one else would ever be offered a chance to rule by his side. After having Jamuka's back broken, giving him his noble death, Genghis Khan had the men who handed Jamuka over to him also killed. Said he didn't want disloyal men in his army. Sucks for those guys. Great Khan, we have handed you your enemy. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. And just looks at some other guys. Hey, grab these two betrayers. Have them executed. Over the next two years, Genghis unites the rest of the Mongolian tribes who wanted to unite with him. He slaughters those who oppose him. There's a new sheriff in Mongolia. And he's definitely the uh, you're with me or against me type. By 1205, Genghis had established a nation similar in size to modern Mongolia. And then the next year in the spring of 1206, at a great Mongol conference of tribal leaders, he's officially proclaimed Genghis Khan at the age of roughly 42. Prior to this, even though I know I was referring to Genghis here and there sometimes, he was still known as Temujin. While Khan is a traditional title meaning leader or ruler, historians unsure about the origins of the word Genghis. May have meant ocean, uh, may have meant just, uh, generally translated as supreme ruler, universal ruler, maybe translated as murderous motherfucker not to be trifled with. Uh, for the next 21 years, Genghis goes buck wild in most Asian parts of Europe. Lays down a lot of blood mayhem. He would conquer more land in this period than any ruler had ever uh, done in a two-stretch, you know, or two-decade stretch before or since. He was the Michael Jordan of conquering. He was the Tom Brady of rape and pillaging. Wonder if Tom Brady would like that comparison. Uh, now that the clans are united, Genghis builds an army that becomes arguably the strongest the world has ever seen, right? And he launches the Mongol Empire that would rule Central and East Asia for over 160 years. He led his soldiers to the first foreign war in 1209. He set forth on a campaign against the Tenguts, who had established a Chinese-style dynasty known as the Shia dynasty in northwest China, along the old Silk Roads, just below Mongolia, a, king a kingdom of about 5 million Tibetan-speaking people, roughly five times as big as the Mongol Empire. Uh, capital, you know, population-wise, uh, capital was uh, Zi Xia. The Tenguts had become involved in a trade dispute with the Mongols, and Genghis was like, "Hey, I need your people to pay my people more for our goods. Stop taxing us so much. Uh, you got to, you got to drop some prices." And they were like, "No." And he was like, "Okay. Well, if you don't want to do that, uh, I'll probably just have to slap you around." And to get Zi uh, Xia, the Mongols had to cross the Gobi Desert. The first major battle took place at a mountain pass where the Mongols feigned a retreat. Then turned around, routed the enemy when more men joined the fighting. Classic Mongol move we talked about earlier. Uh, Genghis's army consisted almost entirely of cavalrymen and their deadly bow and arrows at this point. 
Uh, Gingrich received what he wanted now in terms of a reduction of tariffs that Tangut supposed on trade. He returned to Mongolia with some new wives, some concubines, and Gia was now a vassal state of Mongolia. This initial victory gave Genghis control of a key Silk Road oasis and the tax revenues that came with that. And Zi Shia, uh, the emperor, gave Genghis Khan his daughter in marriage. Yeah, the emperor, I'm sorry, of the uh, Zi Shia uh, gave uh, Genghis Khan his daughter in marriage and a nice yearly income in the form of a tribute. And some 30,000 uh, Shia craftsmen uh, were brought to Mongolia to help Genghis Khan build his new capital of uh, Karakorum. In 1211, Genghis launched his second foreign war against the rich Jin dynasty of northern China, which controlled China down to the Yangtze River, the dynasty he'd allied himself with in some battles years prior. This kingdom had about 20 million people, way more people than the Mongolians. The Jin were people from Manchuria who, like the Shia, had become involved in a trade dispute with the Mongols. And the result was an attack by the Mongols who weren't going to accept not having the access they wanted for the prices they wanted for the products the Jin produced. Before leaving on his 1211 campaign against the Jin with a force of 70,000 warriors, Genghis Khan told his people that heaven has promised me victory. And then his army breached what would become the Great Wall of China by advancing through a 15-mile-long gorge with the help of a turncoat Chinese general, who he did not execute for betraying his initial army. He would back off that policy for the rest of his life. He was like, maybe I shouldn't kill enemy soldiers who tried to help me, who joined my side. Maybe that's not the best policy. Uh, from intelligence sources such as merchants and defecting Jin civil servants, Genghis Khan learned that the Jin, the Jin Empire was racked with internal problems, vulnerable to attack, and that its huge army of 600,000 troops was pinned down at their southern border where the Jins were engaged in a long-running war with another massive Chinese empire, the Song Dynasty. The perfect time to attack them. From 1211 to 1214, the outnumbered Mongols ravaged the Jin countryside. They focused on attacking small villages and farms. They sent, you know, now homeless Jin peasants pouring into Jin cities by the thousands. Because of this, the Jin dynasty suffered from a massive food shortage. Starvations began. Genghis starving their empire. During the food crisis, the Jin ended up killing thousands of their own peasants to keep more people from starving, which was not great for national morale. Uh, brutal and brilliant, Genghis knew because of uh, how many more soldiers the Jin had that heading into a head-to-head -head battle trying to siege their cities would not be wise. Even if their main armies were fighting way down south, they still had more troops up north than the Mongols. And his strategy worked. The food shortage the Mongols created pushed the emperor to surrender. In early 1214, the Jin emperor offered Genghis substantial rewards for the Mongols to withdraw, including enormous quantities of gold, silver, and silk, literally thousands of horses. He gave Genghis a princess as a wife, acknowledged Genghis as his overlord. Genghis traveled back to Mongolia. Shortly after he made it back home, the emperor broke the agreement. Damn it! Now he has to go back. 1215, Genghis marches back down to Zongdu. The Mongols destroy the city in the Battle of Zongdu. Before his armies arrived, the emperor had retreated to the southern portion of his kingdom, so he escaped, moved his court to the city of Kaifeng. Now the northern portion of his kingdom would soon belong to Genghis. Those who remained in the city of Zongdu were slaughtered after being starved to the point of rampant cannibalism. Things got, things got crazy in the city. Towards the end of the fighting, Jin trapped inside the city. They'd ran out of ammo. And they started putting gold and other valuables into the canyons or into their cannons and shooting that at the Mongols. Right? It's just fucking crazy. They just, they had nothing left. They're just like, ah, put, put those gold coins in the cannon. Shoot that at those sons of bitches. Uh, they were all slaughtered. The Mongols breached the 40-foot high walls. The city butchered and raped and pillaged. Months after the battle, a passing eyewitness wrote that the bones of the slaughtered formed white mountains and the soil was greasy with human fat. It's a seriously gory visual. Uh, the war in China continued under the leadership of one of the Khan's generals while he advanced to the West. 
From 1212 to 1215, Genghis's armies sacked 90 different Chinese cities. The Jin would eventually be completely overthrown uh, in the southern portion of the kingdom by the Mongols in 1235. Several years after Genghis's death, eventually they would get them all. After a few more years of fighting in 1218, the Mongol army was exhausted by continuous campaigns against the Jin and against the Western Shia kingdom. It also uh, began battling uh, south of Mongolia. Genghis, he's power hungry now. He doesn't feel like taking a break from fighting or slowing down the expansion of his empire. He decides to engage war with a third empire while still fighting the other two. Uh, Genghis sends two Tumen, 20,000 warriors, a Tumen, uh, 10,000 warriors, under the guidance of his brilliant young general Jebe against Kuklung, or Kuk, Kuk Lu, excuse me, who ruled over the Western Liao dynasty of Central Asia, also known as the Karakatai Empire, to the south and west of Mongolia, a vast empire, 580,000 square miles, 1.5 million square kilometers large. And this goes very, very well, sends Genghis on a path westward, leads the Mongols uh, all the way to Europe. An internal revolt is incited by Mongol spies, and then Jebe overruns the country with his 20,000 horsemen, shooting all their poison arrows and halberding dudes to death left and right. Kukluk's forces are defeated. He's captured and executed. The Mongol Empire now extends almost to the Caspian Sea in the west and to the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea. Uh, Genghis Khan's reputation now spread throughout Asia, as this next story illustrates. It's one of my favorite parts of the suck. Just to make sure they weren't on Genghis's list of places to fuck up next, envoys from Korea traveled to Genghis Khan's gear to offer to pay him a tribute. I mean, this is some serious shit. Right? As a preemptive measure, envoys from a nation thousands of miles away show up out of the blue and are like, hey, we don't even know if you even know we exist yet. We don't know if you want to kick our asses or not, but just in case you're ever thinking about it, please do not. We preemptively surrender. We surrender now. We know we don't even have any you know, current plans to fight us necessarily, but just we've, we've surrendered already. Take our money. Uh, happy to bring back more every year. I picture Genghis, you know, accepting their, their offer very seriously. Like, wise decision. I did know about you guys, of course. And we were going to kick your guys' ass in like a year. So good good decision for you guys. Thank you very much. And then when they leave, he just turns to an associate, you know, he's like, who, who the fuck were those guys? Where's Korea? Is that a real country? In 1219, Genghis decides to do some damage to the eastern province of the uh, 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 ah, Quarizium Empire in Central Asia after some fools done fucked up and murdered some of his ambassadors. This dynasty's empire, another big one, right? Uh, stretching all the way to the Caspian Sea, includes parts of present-day Afghanistan and Iran, 1.4 million square miles, 3.6 million kilometers. Uh, the year before, in 1218, a caravan of Mongol merchants had been sent by Genghis Khan to negotiate trade deals with the, with the Khwarizm. Khwarizm? Ah, I don't know. The merchants were sent. Fuck, this, this word, I couldn't find anything decent. The merchants were sent to give the Shah of Khwarizm uh, gifts of jade, ivory, gold, cloaks of valuable white camel hair. And the Shah, fearing that they were spies, killed the envoys for being insolent enough to request some changes in the conditions of trade between the Mongols and the Central Asians. Big mistake. From the Mongol standpoint, the murder of the merchants and ambassadors, the most heinous of crimes. Had these ambassadors not been killed, the Mongols may, uh, may not have, you know, went on to Europe. They may have just uh, stopped where they were. Sometimes it seems like Genghis didn't really want to, you know, or didn't intend to have the kind of empire he ended up with. He wanted tributes. He mostly just wanted people to recognize him as, you know, overlord. He didn't need to rule them directly. Just like, tell me that, you know, you understand that I'm the big boss. Give me a tribute. Give a fair deals to my merchants and I'll leave you alone. And when people didn't accept that, that's when he fucking just annihilated them. Uh, and the Quarism Empire did not agree to plan A. They, they aggressively rejected it. And now he had to punish them. His campaign against Central Asia, first and foremost, 
an act of revenge. Let's get ready to rumble! Sunday, Sunday, Sunday! Genghis Khan and the Mongols take on Does It Really Fucking Matter? The Shah of Who Gives a Shit just undid it! Over 200,000 Mongol warriors coming to Central Asia, hoping to collect over a million skulls. Who stands in their way? It's gonna be a bloodbath. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. After devoting considerable time to logistical planning, Genghis organizes a major force, more than 200,000 troops, huge for a Mongol army, and they set out against Central Asia. Gigantic caravan. Man, just imagine that in your mind. Tens of thousands of camels, Hundreds of thousands of horses, giant siege weapons, all rolling across the steppes of Central Asia, headed for war, right? 200,000 troops. They're gathering uh, more and more locals to use as shields and, you know, for, for these prisoners of wars for various duties when they get to the next city. So they're getting tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of them as they, as they march through Central Asia. Can you imagine seeing that headed for your city? Especially if you knew it was the Mongols, if you knew what they'd done to other cities, the fear you would feel. Genghis vented his fury with a string of massacres beginning in Utrar and Bukhara in 1219. Wasn't easy for Genghis to fully penetrate and conquer the great cities of Central Asia, but he did it. When he leaves Central Asia in 1225, up to 30% of the population had been massacred. Sacked dozens of cities and settlements. In 1220, Genghis Khan attacked uh, Samarkand, then a great Silk Road city of 200,000 people nourished by an aqueduct that brought water to the arid steppe around the city from faraway mountains. Famous for its craftsmen that produce saddles, copper lamps, and silver lame, fabric with silver fibers woven into it, like fancy shit. When Genghis Khan's army appeared, according to one report, the Shah and 110,000 of his troops fled the city, and the city noblemen opened the gates and begged for mercy. And they were shown little. A 13th century Persian historian, Atta Malik Juvani, uh, wrote that Genghis killed all who took refuge in the citadel and the mosque, pillaged the city completely, conscripted 30,000 young men along with 30,000 craftsmen into his army. The Khan's armies then destroyed other great Silk Road trading centers such as Merv, Ba, Harat, Nishapur. We devoted an early episode of Time Suck specifically to Nishapur. Uh, kingdoms that resisted risking, uh, you know, having their entire populations massacred. According to Muslim chroniclers, 100,000 defenders were killed and a river diverted to flood the city of Regench. One city got hit worse uh, than many was a place called Merv in present-day Tur- Tur- Turkmenistan. A Muslim holy man and his many helpers allegedly spent 13 days counting the dead of Merv. They counted 1.3 million victims. Uh, Under the Seljuk Turks, Merv had become a city full of palaces, libraries, observatories, canals that nourished parks and lush gardens. It was beautiful. And then all that came to an end when messengers of Genghis Khan in 1218 showed up demanding their tribute, demanding their pick of the city's most beautiful women. And the Seljuks were like, who the fuck are you? Get out of here. They killed him. Then the Mongols arrived three years later and like, ah, those guys that, you know, you killed a couple years ago, those were our guys, right? They were, uh, they were, they were, our, they were our buddies and we're pretty pissed off about it and you guys need to surrender. And then the Seljuks did surrender and then the, uh, the Mongols were like, yeah, too little, too late. We're still pissed about those guys. And they just killed them all anyway. According to some accounts, each Mongol soldier uh, had to decapitate 300 to 400 civilians and set the city aflame, right? They would have, the, <laughs> and they were so organized, it was so dark. Uh, we talked, I talked about this in this early Nishapur suck, when they would have to do like if they were if they were ordered to kill like three hundred dudes, four hundred dudes, they didn't just take their word for it that they did it. They would have to bring back like three hundred sets of ears, you know, uh, or I guess you know three hundred. Make sure I guess I don't know how you tell the right ear from the left ear. I think you'd have to get a set. I know it was ears. They'd have to bring bags of ears back. Be like yeah, we did it. Here's my three hundred ears. 
Uh, Genghis Khan's army then destroyed other Silk Road trading, trading centers such as Ba, Nishapur, Ghazni, Herat, as I said, uh, all in present-day Afghanistan and Iran. They starved out many populations, destroying their irrigation systems to help their siege efforts. Damage done to various ancient irrigation systems in these areas took centuries to repair. The irrigation systems the Mongols destroyed in present-day Iraq, not repaired until just this last century. Also around this time, Genghis's generals uh, Subutai and uh, Jeba encircled the Caspian Sea in 1221. Uh, with 20,000 men, annihilated every army that got in their way between 1221 and 1223. That, spe- that specific Mongol campaign has been referred to by some historians as the most daring military campaign of all time. That's when they briefly invaded Europe. 1221, the Mongols arrived in Herat, present-day Afghanistan. Inhabitants initially spared, but when they rose in revolt, Genghis Khan told one of his generals, since the dead have come to life, I command you to strike their heads from their body. That's some, that's some cold shit. That's some crazy shit to say. Right? Did they not know that they're dead? Did they not know that, that that could kill them at any moment? Well, they'll know now. Reportedly, only somewhere between 9 and 40 of the city's original 1.6 million inhabitants survived. How weird to be one of those nine people. One day your life is living in this big, giant, thriving, beautiful city. Then the Mongols show up. A few months later, everyone you've ever known, everything you've ever known, destroyed or dead, outside of maybe eight other people. In another trading center visited by the horde called Ba. Uh, the citizens of this fabled mother of cities in present-day Afghanistan are massacred even after surrendering again. One historian said they were divided up according to the usual custom of hundreds and thousands put to the sword. Uh, and then there's that other Mongol campaign up north, right? 1222, 1223, Genghis General Subadai, Jeba, defeat two large armies, present-day Georgia, Across the uh, Caucasus Mountains in winter, defeating 80,000-man Russian army in 1223. We touched on that recently again in the Ivan the Terrible Suck. Mongol leaders now thought they had accomplished their mission before returning to Mongolia. However, they decide to arrest their troops and gain a little more info about the lands to the north and the west. They camp near the mouth of the Dnieper River, and their spies soon are scattered throughout eastern and central Europe. And then a Russian army of 80,000 under the leadership of a prince of Kiev marches against them. Initially, Jebe and Subidai sought peace. However, when their envoys are murdered, here we go again, they destroy the Russians. Mongols did not let shit slide. If you killed their envoys, if you killed their ambassadors, right? They were never like, ah, I get it. No, those guys were assholes. Shit happens. Nope. You always got pounded. Uh, the Mongols defeat the Russians by attacking first with lightly armored archers, then luring the enemy behind a smoke screen set by dung fires. Then cavalrymen armed with lances and swords charge, forcing the Russians to break ranks, run over each other as they flee for their lives. Historian Charles Halpern uh, estimates that by the time uh, of this battle, the destructive power of the Mongol war machine eclipsed anything the Russians had ever seen before. But they wouldn't push farther west into Europe, not yet. Genghis in his 60s now, seeing his health decline, wants to return to Mongolia, make sure Mongolia knows who will be running his empire when he's gone. In 1225, both Mongol armies returned to Mongolia. Back in Mongolia, he selects his son, Ogadai, as his successor, establishes the method of succession for subsequent khans, specifying they must be his direct descendants. Also in 1225, he finds out that Western Shia and the Jin have readied a force of 180,000 troops to try and knock him out of their territories. Uh, he's got a lot of enemies by this point, a lot of borders to defend. In late 1226, when the rivers are frozen, the Mongols strike south to deal with this new threat. Despite a Western Shia army of more than 300,000 troops, the Mongols annihilate them. Pursuing energetically, the Mongols kill the Western Shia emperor in a mountain fortress. The emperor's son takes refuge in the great walled city of Ningxia, and the Mongols divert a canal uh, that they're going to flood the city. And just before they do flood it, the city surrenders, leaving a third of his army to hold Ningxia. Genghis sends his boy Ogadai eastward to destroy the Jin. 
with the remainder of his troops, Genghis marches southeast to the eastern Sichuan province, where the Western Shia, the Jin, and the Song empires meet to prevent Song reinforcements from reaching uh, Ningjia. He's just always, always fighting, always battling, always traveling. Then on August 18th, 1227, in the midst of all this fighting, Genghis, at around the age of 65, dies in a camp in Yinshuan, capital of Western Shia. He may have died due to complications from injuries he'd received after falling off his horse the previous year. The horse probably got sick of him drinking his blood, you know, drinking his milk. On his deathbed, he outlines plans that later would be used by his successors to complete the destruction of the Jin Empire. Even as he lays dying, his mind is on conquest. Ogadai Khan uh, then takes over as his successor and continues to expand his father's empire. As was the practice of his tribe, Genghis Khan buried in an unmarked grave in Mongolia, possibly in the region of his birthplace. When the emperor was finally laid to rest, supposedly his soldiers rode a thousand horses over his grave to destroy any remaining trace of it. In the 800 years since Genghis Khan's death, no one has found his tomb. There's all kinds of rumors about what happened to it. Supposedly a river was diverted over it, uh, you know, so no one could find his grave. Supposedly everyone who uh, ever knew about his grave, you know, were killed. Uh, it's considered taboo in Mongolia to even seek out his grave. Outsiders have used satellite and radar and shit to try and find it, but no luck. Uh, there's even a curse legend that says all kinds of horrible things will happen to whoever finds his tomb. In all likelihood, his tomb will never, ever be found. I mean, if he was just buried in like a random grave in the middle of nowhere, uh, it might just be completely obliterated by this point. Uh, now let's hop out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So Genghis Khan and the Mongols, they kicked the shit out of a good chunk of the world in the early 13th century. Although not famed for creating any lasting architectural wonders or political institutions, the Mongols made significant contributions to the world of culture by finally connecting the Eastern and Western worlds via expanded trade routes, diplomatic embassies, and the movement of missionaries and travelers from Eurasia to the Far East. And they did this by uh, shedding an unprecedented amount of blood. Let's leave with a few more examples of that because it does fascinate me more than anything else with the Mongols. Just uh, how devastating they were in war. Although Genghis Khan actually did restrict the use of torture in his empire, a lot of people still died torturous deaths. Uh, Mongol executions, man, often extremely grisly. When Gaya Khan, grandson of Genghis, suspected that a powerful courtier uh, named Fatima had poisoned his brother, he had her tortured into confessing before, quote, her upper and lower orifices were sewn up and she was rolled up into a sheet of felt and thrown into the river. Yee! Had her mouth, butt, and vagina sewn shut, if I'm interpreting that correctly. Possibly her ears, nose, and eyes too. That is some serial killer shit. This next death, also pretty damn brutal. The Mongols had a taboo, as we talked about earlier, against uh, shedding royal blood. Right With royals, you're, they're supposed to die without shedding blood. So instead of, say, like beheading a royal, uh, they would often crush them. You know, like uh, we talked about Jamuka earlier dying from a broken back. Well, this next dude's death may have been more painful than that. After Baghdad was sacked by the Mongols, the caliph of the Ubasid Caliphate, Al-Mustasim, rolled up into a carpet. The carpet set out in a field and then trampled to death by stampeding horses. Can you imagine being in that carpet? Oh, you can't see anything. You're all fucking squeezed in there. You're rolled in the carpet. You've just been placed out in some field. Some translator has undoubtedly let you know what's about to happen to you. Or maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's a big surprise. Maybe like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? They just don't even say anything to you. They just set you out in the field. And then pretty soon, you just feel like a little bit of a vibration. And then you can tell like, oh shit, that's, that's, that's horses. Oh God, those are coming towards me. Right? I wonder how long they made this dude wait out in the heat, in the dark, you know, before he heard that distant rumbling. And then it just gets closer and closer. You don't know exactly when they're going to stomp you, where they're going to stomp you. Oh man, how do you spend those final moments? Screaming for help, begging for mercy? Just quiet, just like, God, get it over with. 
1223, after the Mongolian army kicked that Russian army's ass, right? The Battle of the Kalka River, the Mongolians decided to celebrate. <laughs> this may be the most ridiculous one. They decided to celebrate by forcing the generals and the nobility of the Russian army to lie down on the ground. Then they put this giant, heavy wooden gate on top of them, right? So they're smushed, but they're not dead. There's not enough weight, you know, to kill them. It's just very uncomfortable. Uh, and then they put chairs and tables, uh, set that up on top of the gate. And then uh, they have their generals have a feast up there. They just have a meal. So they just sit there and then the weight of the people having the feast crushes the people underneath the gate to death slowly. So they're just, they're just drinking and celebrating as these guys are getting smushed beneath them. Why is that funny to me? So fucked up. But how, how satisfying would that feel to dine on top of your enemies? Man, this steak is delicious. Hey, Prince Vladimir, you still alive down there? Knock twice if you want to bite. Grunt painfully if you'd like a bite of tasty steak. You got any room in your belly? Or has your stomach already been squished out? Or your flat-ass body? Uh, Genghis himself once ordered a Persian noble to die an arguably even worse death. He had this guy tied up, covered in sheep fat, wrapped in felt, and then set out in a field and just slowly cooked by the, by the sun. I know that's not funny. It's just so ridiculous. What a ridiculous thing to do to somebody. They were so imaginative when it came to killing. And, and, and again, they didn't just do this stuff for their own amusement. Uh, it doesn't seem. A lot of historians have written about, again, how their greatest weapon may have been just, you know, their terrible reputation. Other empire leaders would hear about this shit. People who did not want to be covered in sheep fat and cooked in the sun. People who did not want to be rolled up in a, you know, <laughs> some fabric and trampled to death by horses or put under a gate and squashed while people were eating a meal above them. And, you know, so then that then when those people are asked to surrender later, that's the kind of shit that's going around in their heads. Like, God, do I really want to be smushed by a gate? Or should I just give these dudes some gold right now? Yeah, a lot of these atrocities, darkly strategic. When Genghis defeated the, the tribe that killed his father early on, he wanted to make sure that he killed anyone who had anything to do with his father's death. Wanted to make uh, sure that no one from that tribe came for him later on down the road. So with these guys, he, he lined up every boy, every man, measured them against the linchpin of a wagon, the axle pin in the middle of the wheel. Anyone taller than that pin, so anyone taller than around three feet high, beheaded. Slaughtered every male but the little kids and the babies. Uh, here's the craziest example of Mongol devastation. This is the one I did a, a whole suck on early in Time Sucks catalog, the Battle of Nishapur. According to legend of this battle, one of Genghis Khan's daughters loved her husband very much, a man named Taquar. Genghis loved him too. He's his favorite son-in-law. When Taquar killed by an archer from Nishapur, a city that was not supposed to fight back, why didn't you fucking listen to Plan A? His wife demanded vengeance, and Genghis, oh, did he give it to her. He had his army slaughter every person in Nishapur. By some estimates, 1,748,000 people killed, women, children, babies, even dogs and cats tracked down and murdered. Then according to legend, they were beheaded and their skulls were piled into pyramids around the city. A request made by Genghis Khan's daughter to ensure that no one got away with a simple wounding. She wanted to see those heads. She wanted to look at those death pyramids and know that whoever shot her husband was dead. Mongols did a lot of crazy shit. And we know about most of it thanks to one book. Primary source for a lot of this info, old book, a Mongolian book called The Secret History of the Mongols, written in the 13th century. The most important, oldest medieval Mongolian text. The only, you know, Mongolian account of all of this. The book covers the origins of the Mongol people, the rise to power and reign of Genghis Khan, written from a Mongolian perspective, right? It's, uh, you know, gives a very different perspective on the Mongols than all the other sources, which were written by their enemies. Gives unique insight into one of the most important leaders in world history. Without it, we wouldn't know half of what uh, we knew uh, and were able to use for this suck. What a, what a wild life Genghis had, man, from an early age. 
forced to contend with the brutality of life in the Mongolian steppe. Rivals poisoning his dad when he's nine, his own tribe later expelling his family, leaving his mom to raise her seven kids alone, has to grow up hunting and foraging, and as an, as, as an adolescent may have murdered his half-brother. During his teenage years, he became a slave. Despite all these hardships, by his early 20s, he'd established himself as a formidable warrior and leader, amassed an army of supporters, you know, created the Mongolian Empire for the first time. Uh, by 1206, he had successfully consolidated, you know, the steppe confederations under his banner and turned to outside conquest. Due to a lack of contemporary records, estimates of the violence associated with the Mongol conquest varies considerably, not including the mortality from the plague in Europe, West Asia, or China. It's possible that between 20 and 57 million people killed between 1206 and 1405 due to various Mongol campaigns, beginning with Genghis Khan's. Many of those people killed brutally. Uh, I know times are turbulent in many of our worlds right now, uh, but if there's a positive takeaway from this suck, is that they're not nearly as turbulent as they were during the time of the Mongols. Reading a lot of disturbing news reports recently, but none of them talk about pyramids of human heads, thank God. 2020 is rough, but it's not nearly as rough as 1220. And now let's look back at more Mongol facts and learn one new one with today's top five takeaways right after one last sponsor. Today's episode of Time Suck brought to you once again by longtime sponsor of the show, Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium, Tax Shop, and Saddlery. Howdy, partners. It's your old buddy Tom Anderson, a.k.a. Captain Whiskerhorn again. Owner proprietor of your most trusted source of sexy bits, bridles, harnesses, halters, hooves, masks, anal plug tails, and more for the Quad State area for the past 20 years. When I heard that today's topic was Genghis Khan, well, as a pony lover, I was excited to suck me some Mongols. In honor of this week's episode, every customer who buys a Mongol ponytail butt plug or a Genghis Khan double dong colon conquer pony play dildo will get a free six pack of some human cumis pony play milk. That's real breast milk taken from a woman dressed up like a sexy mare, fermented and bottled in our warehouse outback. And if you haven't sipped some cold human kumis after a long day of training and riding and whipping your sexy pony, you haven't lived, my friend. And it tastes a hell of a lot better than Don Doberman's nasty-ass puppy play dog cheddar, I'll tell you that. So come on down and say hi to Captain Whiskerhorn and his trusty sexy steed, Sasparilla. Hi-yo, Sasparilla! Away! Uh, now it's time for today's top five takeaways. Hail Lucifina. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Genghis Khan's famous name is actually a title, meaning basically the king of kings. He was born in Temujin, which translates roughly into blacksmith. From blacksmith to the king of kings, dude made some shit happen in his life. Conquered far more territory during his reign than Alexander the Great or any Roman emperor. No one conquered like Genghis. No one. Number two, it's estimated that Genghis had roughly 500 wives, even more junior wives. Such a creepy title. Plus countless concubines and subsequently uh, is responsible for millions of modern day descendants. Approximately a half percent of the world's dudes have his Y chromosome. One of the world's most prolific procreators. Number three, old Genghis didn't only murder and rape. He also opened up the Silk Road, tolerated multiple religions, maybe spared a couple of people here and there, uh, didn't allow his own people to be enslaved and started the first ever international post office. Number four, Horse milk beer. Good luck drinking any kumis and not thinking about how I said it may come from a stallion and not from a mare. And number five, new info. Part of Genghis Khan's legacy is perhaps the very first usage of biological warfare. In 1345, the city of Kaffa on the northern coast of the Black Sea, raised by a vicious pandemic, 
After successfully repelling the first Mongol siege in 1343, Kaffa leaders knew that Johnny Begg, Khan of the Golden Horde from 1342 to 1357, great-great-great-grandson of Genghis was due, uh, going to strike again. When he did in 1345, he brought more than his standard Mongolian army. He brought the Black Death. We talked about this in the Black Plague episode. When the Mongols laid siege to the city of Kaffa, they were struck by the plague. According to an account of the events, the Mongols were suddenly fallen left and right as though they had been struck by thunder, with lumps on their joints and dark marks on their faces. They developed a putrid fever and died in days. Their army suddenly decimated. Rather than just walk away from the fight, they put the corpses of their dead on catapults and flung them over the defensive walls of Kaffa. Load the Greg! Aim the Greg! Fire the Greg! Nuts! Just catapulting plague corpses into the city. And it worked. They spread the disease not just to Kaffa, but through people fleeing Kaffa to all of Europe. In doing this, uh, the Mongol horde may have accelerated the spread of the Black Plague that killed 30 to 60% of Europe's population, half of China's population, may have reduced the world population from an estimated 475 million to 350 million in the 14th century. And they may have also made funerals the most exciting they've ever been. Forget being cremated. Forget being buried. When I die, I want to be catapulted. Right? I've said it before, a long time ago, and I'm saying it again now. Load the Dan. Aim the Dan. Fire the Dan. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Ah, we did it. We sucked Genghis, a dude who was probably uh, pretty used to getting sucked in his lifetime. I hope that was entertaining. This is the first suck I re-recorded. Damn it, it was hard to figure out what info to leave in, what info to leave out, to say a lot of these words correctly, to make it entertaining. I don't know why this was a tricky, tricky one for me. Uh, If you didn't like this episode, uh, you know, at least take a little solace that you would have hated the first recording more. Uh, Thank you to the Time Suck team, uh, Queen of the Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Horsecock Paisley, Bitelixer, Logan and Kate at Spicy Club running badmagicmerch.com. Thank you to the script keeper, Zach Flannery, for, uh, for you know, make, putting a lot of info in here. It's a hard topic uh, to try and get, to put into one show. Thanks to all those involved in keeping the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group fun, a growing place for discourse and ridiculous memes. Uh, thanks to the all-seeing eyes of the cult and the countess of the cult, Liz Hernandez, for moderating the Facebook group. Thanks to Liz for overseeing the Bojangles emails. Uh, and check out Discord. The TimeSuck Discord channel can be accessed easily via the TimeSuck app available on Apple and Google Play stores. Next week on TimeSuck, uh, the Space Lizards voted for a topic that takes us into the darkest, most dense forests of North America to learn about the legend of the Wendigo. Been a while since we talked about cryptids here on TimeSuck. Wendigos, evil man-eating giants of several Native American tribes' mythologies. They play the roles of monsters and boogeymen in some legends, while in other stories, members of certain tribes who commit sins, especially selfishness, gluttony, cannibalism, turned into Wendigos as punishment. The Wendigo is supposedly a tall, bony, humanoid-looking creature. Long, super thin limbs, elongated claw-like fingers, plus a terrifying face and sharp teeth. Several depictions of this mythical beast also describe elk horns or even a whole decapitated elk skull on the monster's head. To make things spookier, these cannibals have supernatural hunting abilities, very fast and strong with heightened senses of smell and and endurance. North America, a treasure trove of amazing folklore and fascinating tales. This topic gives us a chance to look into not just the Wendigo, but many others. Stone giants, man bears, toad women, and more. We're going to investigate several American Indian legends. And that's next week on Time Suck. Now for some community, onward to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. 
First update coming in today from genius meat sack Thomas Fogg regarding last week's nature versus nurture discussion in the Killer Kid Suck. Thomas writes, greetings, Master Sucker. During the most recent suck, you had some self-reflections on your own interests and your own upbringing and how that relates to others' claims of what parents claim led their sweet angels uh, who wouldn't hurt a fly down the path of evil. While I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist, or mental health professional of any kind, I've read many web articles, studies, even several thesis papers on this very subject. Let me start off by saying I've been playing violent video games since I was five or six. I've been watching horror and action movies since I was four or five. I've been reading comics for as long as I can remember, and I've been watching porn since I started being sexually curious. First off, my first non-violent cartoon uh, violent video game I started playing was Grand Theft Auto 3. My cousins had it at their house on PS2. I would play it nonstop every time I was there. My first horror movie was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. To the credit of my parents, they didn't know I was watching it. I've been reading superhero uh, comics forever, started getting into darker and grittier graphic novels when I was about 12 or 13, right before high school. I love the greats like Garth Ennis, George Perez, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, so many others. I also, like everyone with a smartphone or computer now, have access to some of the most graphic pornography ever made with the stroke of a few keys. My parents were and still are good parents, but I have three siblings and they couldn't both work and keep track of all of us 24-7. Now, I understand that, it's potentially, that it potentially has more to do with my nature than my nurture, but I'm a pacifist. I hate seeing violence done to others, non-consensual, obviously. If two guys beat the hell out of each other in an MMA tournament, they've chosen to be there and I have no problem with them going at it. Uh, I never got into a fight throughout school, not because I'm afraid of being in a fight. I'm 5'11 and 235 pounds. Been that uh, height, weight since high school, took self-defense classes, but obviously uh, one kid from Ohio doesn't make for much of a well-rounded study. So let's look at the broader picture. Recently, many studies have been run based on pressure from claims coming from high-ranking public officials. Many of these individuals cite violent video games as the obvious problems that are causing America's youth to start shooting each other in our schools. These individuals generally either do not name a specific game or will cite Grand Theft Auto, which is most likely the result uh, of doing a Google search for violent video games. Interestingly, the most recent studies have found that many of the recent school shooters did not play violent video games. How could that be? The highest selling video game of all time is Minecraft. While it does have violence, I've seen smaller kids, or yeah, while it does have violence, and I've seen smaller kids poison animals and laugh as their health bars drain, violence is not the main focus of the game. Arguably, it is a creative aspect of the game that is the focus. The second highest selling video game of all time, however, is Grand Theft Auto V. On that same list of top-selling video games, there are other Rockstar titles like Red Dead Redemption, names like Call of Duty, Skyrim, Witcher 3. Pretty safe to say these games uh, are popular, pretty violent. When you look at school shooters, you see the trend that most of them are not popular. They aren't following the most recent trends. They don't have a ton of friends. They aren't someone that people pay attention to, or if they do, it's because they're worried that they are seeing signs of a school shooter. Parkland shooting testimonials speak to this. What they found is that the individuals who are school shooters are less likely to consume violent media, including video games and movies, because that is what the societal norm is, right? They're outliers. What politicians are doing right now, what they've done since the advent of politics is scapegoating. They've done it on anything they could possibly blame for behavior and give it a simple solution. Comic books, video games, movies, drugs, pornography. If you want evidence that it's simple scapegoating for a simple and single villain to blame for a complex systemic issue, look no further than Ted Bundy. Ted claiming that porn pushed him to do a lot of the violent acts he committed. Not to say porn has no psychological side effects, but we currently have access to truly any type of porn you could possibly want in great quantity because of the dark web that includes porn featuring violent rape, murder, child molestation, other terrible acts. 
we absolutely objectively have access to significantly more porn and more depraved porn than at any point before in human history. I would argue that it was uh, that as that we as humans are getting no more depraved or violent though. And I would even further argue that statistics show otherwise. Yes, exactly. Like you said, people now have outlets for their baser urges and fantasies. I think the problems we have right now regarding violence, shootings, et cetera, are significantly more complicated than a simple single topic or bad parenting. You said your daughter may have been likely to murder when she got older if you didn't intervene. Kind of half joking there. Uh, but would you say you were a bad parent beforehand? If she had killed, wouldn't you wonder what you could have done differently to prevent her from getting to that point? How would you react if she suddenly snapped and killed someone today? Just some food for thought. I'm not saying I have magic answers to what causes systemic problems. Uh, we should start figuring out what's wrong with our culture if we stop. Uh, we could start figuring out what's wrong with our culture if we stop pointing figures, fingers, stop prejudging, and have a more open and public conversation about it. Sorry for the long ramblings. I love this suck as always. Thomas Fogg, a.k.a. the essential nerd with too much time on his hands. Well, Thomas, uh, love your message. Sorry for uh, a couple points there where I, I paused. <laughs> One thing I haven't brought up here that's been making the show a little trickier the past few weeks is because of COVID-19. It's uh, the place that makes like lenses for my, at my eye doctor's place is backed up and it's taken a while for my new prescription lenses to get here. So I, I can't, <laughs> it would be ridiculous for me to make the font much bigger. I just literally have trouble seeing my own notes sometimes and like, wait, what's that word? Anyway, Thomas, uh, if this were an Instagram post, I would like it then unlike it just so I could like it again. Uh, yes. Scapegoating is what politicians do so much of the time. Uh, they're sure doing a shit ton of it today. Uh, how nice would it be if more of our leaders, you know, would do stuff like say, like, I'm sorry, I'll work on being better instead of just playing a, a blame game. Uh, I like that you talked about how most recent shooters did not play vi violent video games, that that's kind of the norm. And a lot of them are, you know, loners, outsiders who are not doing what everyone else is doing, which makes them feel more alone. Kind of weird to think about that way that maybe if they would have played more, more games with other kids, maybe they wouldn't have done what they did. I know it's more complicated than that, but interesting. Uh, thanks for giving us a lot to think about as always, Thomas. Love how much research you're always doing on your own. Uh, crazy almost got killed by a serial killer update. Now coming in from super sucker Marie Goulet, uh, who writes, hello, master sucker. I'm a new listener. Been binging on time suck since my boss suggested you. El Patron, that was a great choice. I'm on the Golden State episode. It reminded me of something I wanted to share with the cult of the curious. During the Night Stalker reign of terror, my in-laws and tiny at the time future husband lived in Diamond Bar, California. When you said that someone got attacked in Diamond Bar, I asked my husband about it. He told me that one night they were sitting in the house and the doorknob jiggled. When my father-in-law went to look it up and no, uh, there was no one at the door, my father-in-law is an imposing six foot five man at the time, a reserve sheriff for Los Angeles County. The next day they heard on the police radio that a house just a few doors down from theirs was attacked. I think Bojangles was watching out for them. Your podcast makes a long drive home more bearable, Marie. Well, thank you, Marie. Uh, how crazy that had your father-in-law not been home, your mother-in-law uh, you know, might have answered the door, might have been killed. Your husband could have been killed by one of the most brutal, heartless fucks we've ever examined. How strange for them to know that the Night Stalker might have been trying to open their door, probably was. I imagine that's something you would think about from time to time for the rest of your life. Hope you enjoy the rest of the catalog and hail Nimrod. Uh, awesome email now coming in from ass kicking metalist fuck sucker, uh, Lindsay McCandless, who shares that dark, violent music saved her. Lindsay writes, hello, suck fam. Uh, Joe Paisley, I love Moretta. Come to Red Rocks in Colorado sometime. So get out there, Joe. Go on, do it. Just get out to Red Rocks. Uh, that's awesome. Yes, Moretta is fantastic. Uh, Dan and Lindsay, love you too. The world needs more people like you. Anyway, regarding your killer kids suck and what you said about angry media and uh, that, 
and something to be said about not feeling alone. I have argued that myself, but for a different type of media, I love metal music. The screamier, the better, as long as it has rhythm. No one expects that of me because I'm so bubbly, kind, and full of dad jokes. Also, I am told pretty girls aren't supposed to like metal music. Fuck that shit. <laughs> I always say that maybe it is because of metal music uh, that I'm so happy. There's absolutely something to be said about shared pain. Metal got me through my, oh my God, I'm a freak and no one will ever understand me face. Then upon discovery of bands like Mudvayne, Tool, Slipknot, and Kill Switch Engage, I realized I'm not alone. My feelings are valid. I screamed with the songs. I cried with the lyrics. I came out of my shell. One of my coworkers today says it's hard to believe I was a loner in high school, but it's because of seemingly angry music that I'm not an angry or lonely person. Also, Dan and Lindsay, I uh, just love the two of you so much. My husband and I want to be friends. Time suck and scared to death make work so much easier. Although scared to death makes me jumpy as fuck. And it makes me feel good to know that fame and podcasts don't ruin everyone. Much love from Colorado, Lindsay McCandless. Well, I don't know about the fame, but I appreciate it. Thank you, Lindsay. It's a very nice message. I love that metal is able to keep you calm and carrying on. And I get it. I get it. Oh, and by the way, speaking of just good angry music, uh, new Run the Jewels album out now, RTJ4. I think it's so good. I mean, I'm a big fan. And I love the three previous albums, but I think this definitely uh, is just as good, maybe even a little better than some previous releases. Yeah, hearing the pain of others can help uh, heal our own for sure. So keep listening to that hardcore fucked up shit and keep being a bubbly, cool-ass person. Now for a scary message coming in regarding a killer kid from an anonymous super sucker uh, that, who writes, Greetings, Time Suck Team. I'm a loyal space lizard and have been a sucker since about 2017. When I was 17, uh, and I've been waiting a long time for the right time to send in a message, and this seems like that time. I live in Belton, Missouri, only about 15, 20 minutes south of KC, and I have my paternal side of my family living in Montgomery, Alabama, and that's where this story takes place. A cousin I barely met has two sons, a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old. The 14-year-old is a known troublemaker, and on Friday, May 29th, he got into trouble, and his father whooped him. Somewhere in the night, something snapped in his head. The next morning, sometime between 11.15 and 11.30 a.m., his dad was sitting in a chair in the backyard and was greeted by his 14-year-old son who was now holding the gun. I'm unsure if any words were exchanged, but the boy unloaded 12 rounds into his own father. Yeah. When police arrived. The boy convinced his younger brother to go along with the story that three men broke into the house, robbed their dad, killed him, and left. The police left the body in the same chair uncovered until about 4 p.m. During that time, my family right down the road went to look. Two of my other cousins who were very close to the victim obviously were very torn up and crying. The killer was hugging people, telling people everything will be all right, playing the part of the victim. That is until someone realized these two boys just basically watched their dad get murdered and there's not a single tear between them. My great aunt even went as far as to say whoever killed Bobby is probably walking with us here right now. Right after she said that, the 14-year-old walked up behind her, placed both hands on her shoulders and eerily muttered, he whispered to me. No, that didn't happen. My aunt said, uh, did say that, but the boy did Nice reference there. I imagine the younger brother was in shock, but the older brother is a textbook sociopath or psychopath. I still get the two confused. I just wanted to share this with you guys since today's episode is about killer kids. Feel free to share on the show if you'd like. I changed the name of my cousin, left mine out for secrecy. And I'm sending it really just to tell you guys a story. I'll be sending in more messages in the future with my name and everything. I listened to all of Dan's comedy specials for about a year. Listened to all of the Bad Magic Productions content religiously. Can't wait to fill my ear bellies with some girthy Joe Dick and wash it down with the nectar of life that is sweet decum. Yes, we're very excited to get our new show out. Uh, thank you guys for all your hard work and dedication, entertaining, informing us, giving us the opportunity to walk around in the best damn clothes in the galaxy, even though I haven't been able to buy any. <laughs> Glory be to Triple M. Hail Nimrod and keep on sucking space lizards. Uh, P.S. I know this email is long, but I refuse to apologize. Well, thank you, anonymous sucker. Man, I'm curious about this case now. 
Has it gone to trial? Like, if so, uh, have sentences been handed down to uh, either kid? Were just one found guilty, both found guilty in some way? What a, what a nightmare. And now one last message, something uplifting. From an incredible prankster and awesome space lizard, Errol Eaton. Errol writes, hey, Dan, Errol Eaton here. Loyal space lizard perpetrator of the highly motivating penny prank. Before I go on to this message, I can't remember if I've talked about this on Time Suck. We talked about it on Secret Suck several times. The penny prank, uh, Errol sent in a message to the Secret Suck about it, and it's a brilliant prank where you just put a penny a day uh, around someone that you have constant access to in your life to make them think that they're going insane, right? Ideally, somebody you either work with so you can see on a regular basis at work, or even better, that you live with uh, so you can constantly place pennies around the house. And you start off, you know, maybe just a penny on the floor, somewhere innocuous, and then you just slowly escalate it day after day after day. You know, maybe there's a penny on the counter. Then all of a sudden, uh, pennies are showing up in places where it's weird for someone to leave them. Maybe a penny's like showing up inside a candle. Maybe a penny's showing up on top of a yogurt container in the fridge. Then, you know, maybe pennies showing up on the person's uh, snooze button on their alarm clock. Then a penny's on their pillow next to their head in bed. Just like whatever, just get weirder and weirder with it. And then Errol writes, things have not always been fun. I have mental illness and you guys have shown me what consistency over time can do. Somehow I picture you sitting at the table recording your 30 minutes of thoughts about David Icke, wondering if anyone would ever care to listen. Oh yeah, in that first episode. And now we sit here years later with an amazing community uh, that is socially distanced and able to share so much love and joy for each other. That brings me to this point. In 2013, I was standing on an overpass on the William Floyd Parkway, looking down at the Long Island Expressway. Thought that no one would miss me and this pain would finally be over. I was gonna kill myself. Well, it turns out fat people can't climb fences so well. And that's all that stopped me from getting over to the edge. Uh, turns out that one month later, after giving up, my life turned around. And that time I started to work again, worked up from a $9 an hour job to almost $25 an hour. I know it's not burning up the world, but it's enough to change my life. And now I'm married for the past two years. Dealing with mental illness, never fun, but we get by and I keep on going. I'm enclosing a picture of the, our new house I'm having built. Should be closing on July 1st, just in time for my 52nd birthday. All I can say is stick with it, never give up. Always get back up. When the world says lay down, you're defeated, look it in the eyes and snarl, I'm not tired and I'm not done yet. I'm still breathing and I have way more to do. That's fucking awesome, man. Kick ass, my cult leader. Much love to everyone there. Thank you for always inspiring. P.S. This is a long email and I'm not sorry. Errol Eaton, U.S. Air Force. Uh, well, thank you for your service, Errol. And uh, how cool, man. House is looking nice. Like that two-car garage. It's looking beautiful. Happy for you. And thanks for relaying such an inspiring message, man. You, you almost ended everything and now you life is going so well. You would have never got to experience any of this if you would have uh, you know, jumped off that bridge. Uh, so glad you didn't. And I like your message of get back up when the world says you're down. Times are tough now for a lot of people, a lot of anger, a lot of it very valid. A lot of people feeling knocked down, a lot of people been knocked down. And a lot of them, you know, if they take your advice, are going to keep getting you know, back up and, and see better days ahead. Love you guys. Hail Nimrod. And uh, look forward to more messages next week. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week. Don't rape and pillage anyone. Maybe don't drink any horse cum beer. Maybe listen more, point the finger less. I'll work on that too. And keep on sucking. Chrysium, Chrysium, Cognate. How many Cognates were there? There were so many empires. Yeah. You've done it. Heads of pyramid skulls. You did it. You learned. I I tried. So you many, did a good job. Okay. Now we got we got to get you out of here. It's good. The cognates. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of, lot of millions of people died. Come on, like cognates. The shoguns. No, that's Japanese.